Good evening, and welcome back to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. I'm your co-host, Kyle Bird. I'm Matt Parmley. And we're joined by a couple friends of ours. Um, we have, uh, as, as per usual, um, our, uh, our, our friend Kevin from Mazer Patrol um, as a returning guest host. Hello, hello. Hello, my friend. Um, and uh, we have for, depending on if I release this before or after the episode we just recorded, uh, the first or second appearance of our friend Lux Edwards. Um, now, people, I don't know if people listening are going to be familiar with them, but uh, if there are, they did a whole intro on the last one. We don't need to regurgitate that. Um, but uh, for those metalheads listening, um, Lux, tell us uh, where they can listen to your bands, because that's pretty much all your social media presence is. Yeah, at this time, pretty much all I do is uh, just promote my bands. Uh, you can hear my bands Soul Mass and Wraith Storm. Uh, both are on Bandcamp and all streaming services. If you like death metal, doom metal, uh, or heavy metal in general, you probably uh, dig what we're putting down. Um, and we are here to talk about Common Rider Black Sun. Um, Matt and I are here just because we're here. Um, Kevin is uh, the closest I know to being uh, someone very fluent in the Common Rider franchise. And uh, Lux is here just because this was a show I watched, and I just was like, you, will wa- you need to watch this. It'll click with you because of reasons. And sure enough, they watched the whole series in like a few days and was like, I love this. And I just casually was like, you know, uh, we were talking about just podcasts, and I was like, you have an open invite if you ever want to come on. And they were like, I will, uh, like, can I do Black Sun, maybe? And I was like, okay. Um, So that's why we're here. Um, So uh, (laughs) to say that this show, uh, so this is the newest in the Kamen Rider franchise. This is a big-budget not quite remake. It's not a sequel, uh, but I, I guess a, a very, very loose reboot of Common Rider uh, Black Sun, or I'm sorry, Common Rider Black. This is Black Sun. Um, uh, in that, it brings over some characters and some mild forms of their relationships, and you know their names, of course, and some design elements, but it seems like it's mostly different. So um, we're going to pivot to Kevin for some common rider kind of one hundred and one stuff. Um, this show uh, is uh, Amazon Prime exclusive, and uh, it dropped uh, here in Japan, I think, at the same time, more or less. Um, and it was announced uh, with Shin or uh, Shin Common Rider. Uh, Anno's upcoming uh, movie reboot of the franchise. They were announced together, and uh, this is the uh, the 50th anniversary show, even though the 50th anniversary is not this year. So in typical Kamen Rider fashion, um, it's wrong. Um, and also the 35th anniversary of the original Kamen Rider Black. 
Um, so before we really kind of, I mean, there's a lot, first of all, just a warning, there's a lot to unpack in this episode, um, because this is an extremely political show, uh, it, very heavy on, on political stuff. I mean, maybe the most political, po- the most politics heavy tokusatsu thing since Shin Godzilla. So there's going to be a lot of stuff here, um, before we get into that, though, uh, I think it's important to kind of talk about Common Rider. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, aside from Kevin, we're all pretty much... Lux is, like, brand new, and Matt and I are more or less novices. Um, uh, the only other Common Rider episode we've done on this podcast is we we did the three films from the 90s. Um, Shin Common Rider, not, not the Anno one, the old one. Um, and then Kamen Rider Zeto and Kamen Rider J, um, the two Amamiya films, which are both great. So this is our, as a podcast, our second journey into uh, the Karate Grasshopper Man. Um, so, Kevin, I understand, you know, we were talking earlier, and I said earlier, you know, I want a, someone that can, like, speak with some kind of knowledge on the franchise. And we were talking earlier, like, you've you've seen... A lot of the original black, but not the whole thing. Um, right. And but but you you've definitely seen a lot of Common Rider. But but my impression of you is that you're a lot more casually into this series than you are. Like you know, I know every year you watch the Ultraman series, but you seem to be a little bit more have more of a back and forth relationship with Common Rider. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I, I think that's uh, a fair assessment. Common um, Rider. I mean, for one thing, it, it's it's been historically a little bit more difficult to see than uh, Ultraman in terms of uh, you know people going back and fan subbing the the older series. Um, I think everything is fan subbed now, but uh, it does get a little bit difficult uh, when you're looking at some of the the Showa era things. Um, uh, at the time when I was kind of getting he- heavily invested in uh, in Tokusatsu, and also a lot of common writers just not as good as Ultraman is. Uh, same thing with uh, Super Sentai. Um, I, I know the the toy fans will hate me for that, but Ultraman's just better. Full stop. Damn. So um, <laughs> because of that, uh, it, uh, it it becomes kind of my less uh, heavily involved franchise but there's still lots of very excellent common rider entries out there and common rider black is definitely uh one of the ones that's heavily agreed on as uh as a high point high watermark in the series and i think uh to illustrate that as you were mentioning the the 50th anniversary you know every year there's a common rider series right now the one that's on is, is geats but um the for the 50th anniversary, they announced three kind of tie-in projects. Uh, the first thing that they announced was uh, Futo P.I., which is streaming on Crunchyroll now. That's an anime that's a sequel to Kamen Rider Double, which was a very popular one. And then uh, the last one that they announced was Shin Kamen Rider, the, the Anno remake movie for the original. Uh, and in the middle of those two announcements, they announced this, Kamen Rider Black Suns, and it's going it's kind of a remake ish of common Rider black. So you can tell already that, you know, black is another fan favorite because they're 
going to the ones that people are really enthusiastic about uh, when you're doing their overview of the entire franchise uh, and kind of sampling. Okay, well, you've got one show from 1971 and one show from 2009, and smack dab in the middle is this uh, this 80s property. Um, and uh, it's kind of a kind of a bit of an outlier because at this point in the common Rider franchise, uh, and I, I can I can talk a, a lot about this if you you want uh, in terms of the overall history of the franchise. Maybe I'll try to keep it focused on on black. Um, uh, but the the Rider franchise had kind of like petered out by the time Common Rider Black came around. Uh, they had done several series. They'd done their their ten riders altogether movie. Uh, with Zekros and uh, the Metal Heroes, uh, which started with Space Sheriff Gavon in, in 82, was kind of that had come along and, and kind of been the replacement to, to Common Rider and a lot of the, the public consciousness and, and frankly, in a lot of the time slots. Um, so you had, you know, their, their big franchises were kind of spoken for, but there was a desire to, to reboot. And uh, go back to some of the roots and themes of the original Common Rider, uh, and that's when Common uh, Rider Black was born. And if you're curious about this, Discotech just licensed Common Rider Black, so I'm sure uh, yes. Mike Dent is going to have some excellent liner notes that are going to go into this uh, much better than I will, and probably point out some of the things that I'm saying are wrong. So everybody, go out and pick up that release when it comes <laughs> out. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, you know, when the, when the original Common Rider came out, it was um, the, the original manga is a little bit slapdash because it was being written uh, kind of in response to the TV series and, and going back and forth. And I think uh, Shotaro Ishinomori was able to do a little bit more of what he wanted to do with Common Rider Black as a manga. And it's, I think it's three times as long as the original Common Rider manga, or maybe it's twice as long. It's it's significantly longer than the original, um, and I think is a little bit more coherent um, than uh, than the original Common Rider manga. Um, but uh, it's it's going back to basics in some ways, in that it is is a reboot of the ideas in Common Rider. You know, it's always going to be. You have a main character who is abducted by an evil organization. Um, in everything up until Black, it was kind of this terrorist group of of ex Nazis, uh, Shocker, or their their descendants of some sort. Uh, and Black kind of mixed it up a little bit by making it an evil cult called Gorgum that had existed on on Earth for thousands of years or something along those lines. Uh, that's a little bit different in this new version, Common Rider Black Sun, because that makes them into an evil political party. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's basically, it, it deals a bit with this duality between these two brothers who are both abducted by this organization as in, in their youth and, and turned into um, soldiers. Yeah. You know, <laughs> There's there's kaijin are the uh, 
the the monsters in in Common Rider, uh, and in the original and in many of the subsequent spinoffs, there are animal themed kaijin, and your main character is always going to be a grasshopper. Uh, so the idea is that this organization has modified a, a person against their will to become a a weapon for them, uh, one of their animal people, and then that person rebels and then has to fight a bunch of other animal people um, in superheroic antics. Uh, I don't know how, how coherent I'm being here. Uh, no, you're, you're good. Um, yeah. So uh, maybe to, to backtrack a little bit, you mentioned Shotaro Ishin- Ishinomori, who is the mm-hmm. creator of Kamen Rider, and I, to me, he is like... If there is a Toei Tokusatsu franchise, there's like a 99% chance that he created it in some way. So Kamen Rider, Super Sentai, you know, Metal Heroes, like he's more or less responsible for all of that. He's like the Tokusatsu, like Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, like uh, even stuff like, you know, the kids shows like Patanton, you know, that that's kind of mm-hmm. all all him um and and one thing uh we we kind of were talking about this before we started recording and i was like wait wait wait, let's save this for the podcast because this is like this is good stuff um uh when you were when you watched this show on facebook you had said common rider black sun feels like the most ishinomori of all the common riders or something like that um which is interesting to me on a couple levels because one, I mean, you know, we, we don't need to get into fandom shenanigans or anything, uh, but this show is incredibly divisive. Uh, th- that might be like an understatement. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, what what did you mean by that? You know, what what about him makes this a show that is very? I mean, he's been dead for a while now, but what mm-hmm. about what about this show makes this? So him, you know, what, what, where did that come from? Uh, so I think that there's kind of, uh, two elements thereof. The first is that, uh, you know, uh, Ishinomori was a student of, uh, the great Osamu Tezuka, who is kind of like the, the god of manga. And both of them had a very sort of humanist worldview. Uh, and if you look at some of, Ishinomori's works like Cyborg 009, uh, I know it gets like a bad rap because it's like getting accused of having like all of these racist caricatures by like today's standards. Well, it, but it, 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 it's not drawn in a way that is very PC. <laughs> but right. from my understanding, there was a truly great intention behind what you're about to speak of. So I'll let you kind of. Exactly. So it's, it's one of those things that the, you know, his. Art style in general is very cartoonish, and when you're doing cartoonish depictions of having, you know, a Chinese character or an African character or a Native American character, uh, that does oftentimes fall into uh, problematic imagery by today's standards. But you have to remember that this is a 60s cartoon made in Japan where you have main characters who are African and Chinese and Native American, and... uh, that suddenly brings it into a very different standpoint that it's your heroes are this very multi-ethnic team. Uh, and that, that was part of the idea is that they're, you know, representing the entire world as 
as this unified front of the the nine soldiers that were rebelling against an organization. Um, basically, Cyborg 009 is proto common Rider, but they don't um, transform. They just they they have their scarves and they have their cyborg powers, uh, and their their team. Everybody has a different power, and they go up against the Black Ghost organization. Uh, similarly, you have Inazuman, uh, where it's kind of really it's the very similar to X Men uh, in terms of you have. Uh, a group of, of mutants who are kind of a, a minority group. Uh, and there are other, other series that deal with that sort of thing, like uh, mutant Sabu. And um, these are elements that are present in the manga versions, but not as much in the Tokusatsu because the mm. Tokusatsu usually were maybe written beforehand or written completely separately uh basically ishinomori would have the rough concepts and he would do his manga concurrently with the development of the tv series so that's why you have weird things like um takeshi hongo gets injured in the original common rider and they bring in common rider number two to Mm -hmm. replace him uh and then uh the the manga kind of like scrambles and all of a sudden like hongo is a brain in a jar for 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 the end of the (laughs) Theories. Um, and that brings me to another element, uh, that there's a lot of melancholy in Ishinomori's works. They usually, and this is something that you see in Tezka's stuff, you know, if you get to the end of Kimba the White Lion, Kimba dies. Uh, and uh, and you see it in uh, Gonagai, who is the uh, most famous student of Ishinomori, you know, you get to the end of Devil Man, and it is not a happy ending. <laughs> so, uh, ain't that the truth? <laughs> yeah, and 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 you get these these really kind of downbeat endings to a lot of stuff. You know, Cyborg Zero Zero Nine ends with the main character basically plummeting from a space station, and then you know, people looking up in the sky, seeing a star burning up as it's uh, things like that. The the ending of Kaiter is you know. Jiro has to kill his his brothers, and it ends on this like text box that says, "When Pinocchio became a real boy, did he truly find happiness?" <laughs> you know, you're just like, "Whoa, this is this is for children." So, uh, a lot of what you get with this, the the questions that it makes you ask about the nature of heroism and uh, the kind of like sad endings that you that you have in this series. Uh, makes me think of the way that an Ishinomori manga would end uh, more so than frankly, most of the other common writer stuff I've seen full stop in, in live action. So that's kind of what I was thinking of. Okay. Um, and, and this show, I mean, it, this show really leans into what in America would be considered left wing uh, leftism. Um, and, uh, we're going to get a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but, um, you know, like Lux was saying, a lot of these, uh, like, activist movements that are alluded to in uh, 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 Black Sun um, happened, like, in and around 1971, which is also when the original Kamen Rider came out. Um, Now, uh, 
like I said, this this show really doesn't pull any punches. Uh, it's about as subtle as a sledgehammer, um, and that's probably why it's so divisive. I mean, you go on any any comment section about this, any forum, whatever, and it's like right down the middle. Some, I mean, it's getting, of course, it's getting blasted now as being quote unquote woke. You know, but from what you're telling me, you know, uh, the creator of this franchise was what would they would those same people would call woke. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he was making superheroes that were fighting Nazis and that were, you know, minority groups and and stuff like that. Um, I do know that he had. Uh, I know that um, in the 90s when they were doing stuff like Zeto and. Uh, um, Shin Kamen Rider prologue, uh, they were kind of trying to bring back sort of a gothic horror element that the original Kamen Rider series had a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know Ishinomori has said, you know, not all of these shows have really been representative of me. And, you know, part of it was, I think, you know, his manga probably leaned, leaned into darker places. Um, but uh, is that something that he seemed dissatisfied with with the original series? Is that it didn't have as much of that as he he'd intended? Because I've had Common Rider explain to me is like it's like a Japanese superhero show with like a little bit of gothic horror in it. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, um, uh, Felipe, I, I, not sure if his last name is actually. Um, is is actually common knowledge. Uh, on on Facebook, uh, commented on my post with an interview with him and uh, Keiko Takamiya, who was one of his students, where he was talking about how he didn't feel that you know he he was able to do everything that he wanted to with with the original Common Rider. Um, so uh, the the Tokusatsu especially were corporate products. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were there were elements that kind of were a little bit compromised, and I I feel like maybe with something like Black, when he was able to do that manga, he might have gotten a little closer to to what he might have wanted. Um, but even then, you know, he had a he had a different proposal at first uh, for for what that wound up being. Um, but that kind of grotesquerie um, that you see in Shin Kamen Rider, uh, where it's really more of a of a a grasshopper monster than like a guy wearing a mask. Yeah. It's like a Cronenberg, uh, like the fly, like mutation. Yeah. That you first see in the black manga. Um, and they kind of uh, black sun has its cake and eats it too, because the character starts off that way and then gets a more traditional superhero look later on. So it manages to, to do both. Okay. So there's a little bit of a crash course in in Common Rider. My favorite stuff is the stuff that leans more into you know, like biopunk, body horror, and you know, gothic horror and stuff like that. Like I, Zeto is still my favorite thing. Um, so uh, so Common Rider Black is the show, the probably the, the series that was like if you want to dabble in Common Rider, you know. Watch, you know, Zeto and Jay and stuff like that. If you like those, check out the show, Kamen Rider Black, which I did, and I have a fairly poor bootleg of the whole series that I made it maybe, like, 
half a disc through, and I was like, this is really good, but I can't with these subtitles, and I just, bleh. So, you know, that Blu-ray release I'm I'm really jazzed about, because it's a damn cool show. Um, and then it was followed by a sequel, right, RX, which seems to not be as well yeah. regarded. Um, yeah, RX is, is kind of a, 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 a kiddier version it, its sequel status is kind of contested. Some versions say that it's an alternate universe. Some versions say that it's a sequel. When they did uh, the big crossover stuff with Common Rider Decade, they actually had two different Kotaros show up, one from Black and one from Black RX. So um, the, they, they kind of have uh, split it up. Um, RX is known in the U.S. because that was the one that they used the source footage for for the uh, uh, critically acclaimed uh, question mark uh, Saban's Master Rider. Oh God! Yeah, that that show. I hated it. Even when I was like a little kid, really into Power Rangers, I didn't like that show. Same. Um, Same. <laughs> it's just abominable, and you know, we the, the quicker we can just move past it, the better. <laughs> Um, uh, so anyway, so, so we're, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Black Sun, um, and, uh, just a little bit of behind the scenes stuff, and then we're kind of, I think it's probably going to be easiest to do, uh, synopsis and review, and then unpack all of the political references and allegories and all of that, because there, that is a whole mess of worms, um, so this is directed by uh, a guy named Kazuya Shiraishi and written by a guy named Izumi Takahashi, um, who usually uh, who is, it seems like a pretty common writing partner for Shiraishi. Um, interestingly enough, though, m- it seems like most of their movies are more like small-scale dramas, um, uh, not, you know, big action spectacle tokusatsu kind of stuff. Um, and then uh, we have we have uh, some great talent behind the scenes. We have uh, Kiyotaka Taguchi as the uh, special effects director. I mean, at this point, he's kind of been everywhere, but you know, he's been the showrunner on a few of the um, recent Ultraman shows and uh, uh, a lot of and directing a lot of those shows, and also doing special effects direction for a lot of those shows. Um, he's done a whole mess of great short films like Gehara, the Long and Dark Haired Monster. Um, and then uh, as the um, kind of designer of the, the show, you know, concept art um, and uh, uh, character designs and monster designs, things like that, you have uh, the great Shinji Higuchi. And I mean, when it comes to design, you know, he's, he's probably one of the, the best out there. Um, and this show had a pretty big budget. Like, this was not just like a cheap make a cheap thing and dump it onto a streaming service. Like, you have uh, the, a, a pretty stacked cast. Like, you have um, Hedatoshi Nishijima, who uh, starred in Drive My Car, you know, the Oscar-winning Drive My Car. Um, he is uh, our main character, Kotaro. Um, as uh, his changed in this to best friend, um, as in the original Black, they were brothers. Uh, Nobuhiko is played by Tomoya Nakamura, um, another guy that has just been everywhere. Um, uh, so you have a, a really like high-profile cast, and that's not even mentioning the support 
supporting players. I mean, some of those guys like uh, Takahiro Miura, you've seen in Shin Godzilla, the Attack on Titan movies. I mean, so so they really uh, pulled a John Hammond here and spared no expense. And uh, it, it looks cinematic. Um, so, uh, Kevin, why don't you tell us a little bit about, I guess, just some of how this stuff and particularly this amazing team of talent came together. Yeah. So, uh, apparently, uh, Shiraishi was, um, told by one of the producers at Toei about the prospect of, um, doing this adult oriented Kamen Rider show and, and really just, um, was very intrigued off the, off the bat with that and, uh, wanted to do something, but he, didn't you know he's not a tokusatsu guy he's not somebody that uh has much experience there so he needed to to get some help so um higuchi uh is was not involved with uh, shin kamen rider um you know just despite all of the stuff that he's doing with with ano uh probably you know because he was working on shin ultraman he wasn't able to to go over and work on shin kamen rider so he wasn't sure if he'd get to work on the franchise and uh when he got the offer he uh, he kind of jumped at it uh and then he invited uh taguchi who was you know his his student and <laughs> he uh he had no reservations and and uh jumped without any hesitation <laughs> um taguchi had uh, previously done some miniatures on um a gambler's odyssey which was uh one of uh, shiraishi's um 2019 movies um so after that had been done, um, Shiraishi kind of like did a crash course on Kamen Rider Black uh, and, um, you know, watched the original series and kind of made his decisions about what he wanted to focus on uh, going with, you know, the the social issues and the kind of emotional story between our two brothers, you know, uh, Kotaro, who is who is Kamen Rider Black and uh, Nobuhiko, who's um, Shadow Moon. Uh, is, is the duality and that that was going to be the, the focus there um so uh you know despite the fact that toy is saying that this is meant for adult viewers uh who uh who grew up with the franchise uh Shiraishi has also said that he uh he hopes that children will watch and enjoy the series as, as well and uh <laughs> I, I don't know what, which children are gonna have a have a good time with that so you know? he may or may not also be a sociopath yeah, Bert, yeah. are you going to let your daughter watch this? <laughs> <laughs> um, Maybe he means like you know children, as in people who didn't watch the original the eighties. <laughs> um. So uh, this really does something interesting: is it, it shifts Kaijin as being a discriminated minority group. Is this the first time that that has? Kaijin have been anything like that, you know, outside of the typical, you know, monster of the week kind of thing? I mean, it's been things. Uh, it hasn't been quite this in Rider before, as far as I can think of. Uh, you know, like in Double, it's more of like uh, an allegory for drug addiction of, you know, people have to shoot themselves up with something to transform into a mm -hmm. monster. And the the transformation devices are being you know dealt by dealers you know something like that, but uh, in terms of this particular like kind of kind of wordplay that you have here, where uh, you know you you have people spewing 
spewing hate speech about uh, kaijin in the same way that they might in real life be talking about, say, gaijin uh, as mm-hmm. uh, kind of a, a new thing for, for Ryder, as far as I know. And like I said, I haven't seen every series. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, uh, the, if, if I were to, like, tell someone, oh, watch this, and they're like, well, what is it? I would say it's, uh, what if Common Rider, but X-Men? With a lot of Logan, the movie Logan, thrown in there as well. Um, so, uh, I'm gonna pivot, um, to Lux, actually, to, uh, give us kind of a general kind of synopsis and, and plot breakdown here. I mean, I'll do my best. We're talking about 10 episodes of a series yeah, here, yeah. but, uh... <laughs> Well, you know, just give us, give us the nuts and bolts, and, you know, when, when we start talking about it in the review portion, you know, we'll, 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 we'll throw out other things. So from the beginning of the show, you're uh, introduced uh, in the very first scene to uh, like this, this, uh, and again, content warning for like everything we're about to talk, talk about <laughs> from here forward. Uh, it's going to get re- pretty bad. Um, the very first scene of the show is this harrowing scene of these, the, the two kids, uh, Kotaro and uh, Nobuhiko uh, sitting or laying on hospital beds. And, uh, I believe it's a uh, Nobuhiko who has his stomach opened up and there's surgeons working on him and it's, it's, it's a little gory and uh, Kotaro is like reaching out to him and screaming his name. And, uh, and it's, there's, it's like these, uh, these scientists are really putting him through something really terrible and some side of dark experiment of some kind. Uh, and, and it all has to do with this uh, total uh, uh, solar eclipse that's going on. Um, so and they go and they they grab this uh, this rock that they uh, call the Kingstone. I don't remember if they refer to it in this first scene as that, but it's what's called later. Uh, and they put the Kingstone into Nobuhiko, and you kind of get this this flash of Nobuhiko's arms. He starts to to transform into Shadow Moon uh, before it breaks off into the show proper, uh, where we meet up with. Uh, really who I think personally is the actual main character of this show uh, uh, as a schoolgirl uh, named Aoi, who is, we pick up with her at the beginning speaking to the UN um, in a very sort of Greta Thunberg type thing, except not angry. Um, she's speaking about uh, Kaijin rights to the UN and how she believes that uh, Kaijin and humans uh, are the same and that they deserve equal rights. Uh, and there's no, uh, there's no difference between them. Not even one gram of difference. You'll hear that uh, and you're, a and lot. <laughs> you're going to hear that so many times. So get used to it. It's, it's like a flashback in Naruto. Um, so we, uh, we get this big speech from her at the UN, uh, about, uh, Kaijin rights, which kind of makes her the celebrity in Japan. And, uh, when she returns to Japan, she's welcomed by her classmates and everything. Um, they, you find that they, the anti-Kaijin groups that, uh, are, are protesting, uh, Kaijin start to, uh, to bother her because she's become this figurehead and, uh, and, even has met up with the prime minister of Japan, who uh, is a not so subtle uh, LDP uh, stand in uh, for real life. Um, 
and you you kind of start exploring uh, her relationship also with her friend who is also a kaijin uh, named Shunsuke, and uh, and you kind of start to learn that the reason she believes so strongly in kaijin rights is because her her best friend and sort of her like like in the hint of that boyfriend Shunsuke um, is a kaijin and they grew up together. So you have that side of the story with the two kids. And then we also have uh, an introduction to uh, uh, Kotaro, who is kind of living in this disheveled state uh, in uh, this abandoned bus out in like an abandoned lot somewhere, uh, which strangely enough is not the Toei Quarry, like you might expect it to be. It's just like an abandoned parking lot or something. Um, and you uh, you pick up also with present day uh, Shadow Moon, who is been imprisoned by uh, this evil organization, cult-like uh, people, uh, and we discover that they are like the Gorgum cult uh, organization. So you start getting all these introductions to all these things that you're familiar with from Cayman, uh, sorry, Common Rider Black, uh, but they're all slightly different spins on it. Uh, again, with Black Sun and Shadow Moon, instead of being rivals, they're friends. Um, we've got these new, new like hero characters with the kids, Awa and Shinsuke. Um, and then finally there's a third prong to the story is, uh, what you get is almost, I'd say about 30, 40% of the show is flashbacks to 50 years ago in 1971 or 72, uh, when, uh, all of the original Gorgum organization was actually, a uh, uh, like a far left uh, movement seeking kaijin rights, and uh, and you see uh, Kotaro and Nobuhiko uh, first uh, getting introduced to this organization when it's seemingly their students, uh, probably like university student age, and uh, and they're meeting all these other university student age people, uh, including uh, which is again very progressive show one of the main characters in the flashback stuff is a guy named oliver johnson who is uh a black guy and that's not something you really expect to see in a japanese show um so as the show progresses we we, uh we we kind of build off of how the past uh events with gorgum and their fight for kaijin rights back in the 70s ties in with the current issues of uh, kaijin rights in the present as far as uh, kaijin, anti-kaijin and pro-kaijin rights uh, protesters clashing um, and all of them being put down by uh, police aggression and the kaijin being uh, mainly the target of police aggression uh, and the political party uh, behind the scenes is actually uh, in charge of uh, keeping track of Gorgum. They have control over Gorgum, and uh, they've been working in the shadows with Gorgum to uh, basically control the workings of all of the kaijin and all of uh, the uh, social social issues in Japan, uh, kind of pulling the strings like some sort of Illuminati. Um, by the time we get to the, uh, the end of the show, uh, Aoi has been put through the ringer um yeah. a lot of people die in this show uh we meet characters 
And a few episodes later, after we've gotten to know them and love them, they are killed off in very violent ways um, by either um, one side or the other of this issue, uh, either the, the anti-Kaijin people or the pro-Kaijin people. Uh, and by the end of the show, we have Aoi being uh, fully uh, radicalized into this far-left uh, terrorist leader, basically, uh, who has also been turned into a kaijin through the course of the show, and uh, is debatably a, a, a common writer herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we are that that's again just this is all there's just so much more going on that's oh, yeah. the basic gist of everything yeah the only details i would add in are like aoi and kotaro form like a at first like hesitant bond but he almost becomes kind of like a almost like a surrogate father figure um and like i said he's like a homeless like drug addict and like that's why i brought up logan it's very much like wolverine and x23 a little bit in in that film um, and then the, the whole, I guess, thing is around the, the, the creation king, which is essentially a big grasshopper man that was created, uh, by, uh, the Imperial, uh, Japan, uh, during World War II as part of, you know, unit 731 kind of experiments. And that, and he's basically like considered like a godlike figure to, um, you know, the, the Kaijin, but he's, he is not, he's been under, you know, custody of Gorgum in a long time and he's getting old and they need him because they make this stuff called heaven, which they use, uh, which is like a blue, like secretion that they like milk out of him. (laughs) And, uh, they combine it with the flesh of, disregarded human beings. Um, and uh, that can be basically anyone that the government has decided is not productive in society um, who will not uh, reproduce. That ties into some some bloodline stuff in Japan. But basically, like, any LGBTQ um, community, old people, people that are disabled, basically people that cannot further prosper the country are, like, imprisoned and like basically either turned into kaijin um uh or you know basically used to make this stuff called heaven which is like uh it has healing properties um it it keeps people from aging or it keeps kaijin from aging um but they they need that because uh the government basically turns people into kaijin um, and basically sells them on the black market to be whatever, you know, they can be, uh, you know, your, your, your chauffeur, your butler, sex slave, essentially anything. So they basically sell them into slavery, um, and they make a lot of money doing it. So they need a new creation King. And that, uh, is kind of where, um, you know, we, we get kind of the conflict, at the end with Shadow Moon and Kotaro, who is Kamen Rider Black Sun. And it turns into almost like a mag, like I said, this is very X-Men. It turns into like a Magneto versus Professor X kind of thing with Shadow Moon being like the Magneto who's like, you know, our kind, you know, has been oppressed enough and we need to rise up and become the majority and, you know, put our foot on everyone else. And Kotaro's just like, look, 
I just want to like go to sleep. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's the show. Um, so, uh, I, let's, let's go ahead and, um, just kind of give general thoughts and, um, and, and impressions. Um, and then, you know, as we talk about more of the political and social stuff brought up in this, you know, we'll get into more of the intricacies, but, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, Shiraishi definitely had his, you know, political views. I, I feel like he is a very angry man and, uh, but it's the right kind of, you know, punk rock, like, yeah, like, like there's problems with the establishment kind of righteous anger, um, the quote I have here is, uh, while this is a hero show, there's something that's been lost to the darkness of modern day, something everyone needs to think about, but have been unable to do so. It doesn't have to exactly reflect the world, but is made so people feel that way. I will do my utmost to make this a piece that makes people think about current social issues in Japan. Um, and so instead of just to the show's benefit and detriment, instead instead of just being like, okay, I need one social problem to focus this on, he's like, how about all of them? And, like, so this show has a whole lot in it. Um, so to give Lux and I a little breathing break, um, I think Matt finished it most recently, so Matt, I'm gonna kind of let you take the floor with just, you know, I mean, what did you end up thinking of, of this show overall? I think it's a really good show and I like it every episode there's things that happen that just kind of like holy crap <laughs> um, and you you certainly don't see the kind of social commentary coming out of Japan I, I mean I can't I can't think of any other show specifically anything like Tokusatsu that's ever really done anything like this I think you see the other side of the coin a little this bit with Shin Godzilla but like yeah, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm surprised. Like, how did it? I don't know how it got made. Like, we we sort of commented in our Facebook thread about like we're surprised this even exists in the form that it does. Um, it's got a lot of lot of gut punches. Uh, don't get attached to many characters because, <laughs> like, just all kinds of craziness happens. There's genuine sadness. There's a lot of characters that you grow fond of and attached to. I think the, the show does a pretty good job of making you feel for the people that you're watching. Um, I think if I were to complain about anything, my very minor complaint is that it is a drama. And sometimes there's some scenes that I felt lingered on a bit too long, like meaning not like they overstayed their welcome, but like the shot itself was like a bit too long and they were sort of, um, drawing it out with extra music and things like that. But like, that's a really minor quibble. I really think the show is something that is needed right now. And I think is something that like, at, well, at least make you think. And I'm always appreciative of those kinds of shows because it is bringing to light things that like, not just happen in Japan, but happen here in the States. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I I agree with everything you said. Um, Kevin, I get the idea that you also really enjoyed this show. Oh, definitely. I mean, this... Um, social aspects aside, and I know that's that's a big part of the... what we're, what we're going to be talking about with, the, with this program is, you know, the subtext and, and, and whatnot, but just purely on an aesthetic level. Uh, I really love that, uh, 
what what it's doing and i think that um i really like to see more mature tokusatsu being made available through amazon prime is frankly one of the champions of this at this point because you know ultraman or origin saga common rider amazons uh which is called amazon riders on in the u.s uh and now um you know, actually, in, in Kamen Rider Amazons, maybe that that would be a, an example where the Amazons are kind of a minority group mm. in the same way that you know some some vampire things make vampires into a minority group. <laughs> it's it's complicated, um, but uh, yeah. And then then you got this, and of of those three, I feel like this is the most beautiful. Um, there are. You know, every once in a while you'll get like a crowd scene with a bunch of kaijin and some of them look like, you know, rubber Halloween masks. But the ones that count uh, for the for the big action scenes that they have uh, are real nice looking. And I frankly am not one of those people that's like, oh, it's there's not enough fighting or whatever, because I think yeah, they did quite a lot in the, <laughs> in the course of this. I didn't do that. <laughs> Not I'm, I'm not i'm not pointing fingers at anyone in this chat i'm pointing fingers to certain other people on certain other message boards that i have encountered oh, yeah. yeah i will say, I, I don't mean to cut you off Kev, but i will say like that's the main complaint that i think people had at this show was like oh there's not enough fighting but like <laughs> i don't know this about is that. Trying, this is this is trying to tell a, well i mean like anyway Aside from the this obvious, is telling yeah. a story yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. i mean there were there were people with you know Oh, I can't believe they got a girl common rider replacing the main male character. Like, oh, come on. Sure. <laughs> it's a ridiculous sentiment. Well, yeah. I mean, those are those are the people that are uh, saying, "Oh, I can't believe common rider went woke." You know, mm-hmm. it's common rider woke son. It's like, I mean, that's a word that I mean the way that it's used now has no meaning and all all it really means is you're upset that it's trying to showcase and foster diversity or a progressive social message. Um, You know, I mean, here it's like, oh, you know, a black person was cast in a Star Wars movie and it's like, oh, they went woke. And it's like, what is like, no, stop it. You know, so I mean, but that is where I think the big, that's a big part of the divide, I think. I think a lot of it, I mean, even among people that might agree with, the social messages of the show. Otherwise, I think it really is just too unsubtle for them. But you know, I what I mean, you know, whatever. I mean, I if that's a complaint, I get it because it's extremely in your face, extremely transparent. But you know, whatever. I mean, I I think it's just great that something like this exists. But you know, we'll we'll get into that. Um, so Lux, why don't you tell us? Um, as uh, I guess the newest to Common Rider, uh, you know, I, I remember like I when I started watching this, I started like annoying you about it because like, you know, I mean, we don't, I don't, you know, we typically don't talk a lot about our social, political beliefs or anything on here, really. But I know that you are pretty, you know, you you do lean very hard <laughs> to the left. And and so a lot of this I was like you got to watch this. Just know it's not even trying to be subtext. It is like bold screaming text. And eventually you were like, "Okay, I'll get on it." So, I what at the end of the day, you know, what where what what are you just general thoughts and impressions of this series? I mean, I had zero uh, 
experience with Common Rider. Yeah, you really uh, didn't know what to expect. Um, aside from growing up, like like you said, uh, catching maybe an episode or two of uh, that horrible Savan Masked Rider <laughs> show, uh, and quickly forgetting it ever existed. Um, yeah, I, I kind of had. Uh, uh, an idea about you know what this this franchise was about. I knew it existed, but I had never actually watched anything. So when you pushed me to watch this, um, I, I was reluctant at first, but you kept pushing me because you're like, "Hey, this is like really political stuff, and I think you'd be into it." So I said, oh, "Okay, I'll watch it." And I got and I got to say, walking away from it now, um, <laughs> yeah, you were right. I, I definitely, I definitely enjoyed it um, because of everything it had to say politically. Um, I think it kind of had too much of a shotgun approach to it. Uh, yeah. Shiraishi, Shiraishi talks about a lot of stuff. And everything. We're going to try and get into as much of it as we can. And, and I will, I'm going to apologize now for that. Um, but uh, sure, it is important, I think, um, to, to say that uh, and bring back up that quote I, that he said, I will do my utmost to make this a piece that makes people think about our current social issues in Japan. Uh, because watching this show as a Westerner, it's very easy to see a lot of metaphors and allusions uh, and maybe a few little allegories here and there um, to stuff that we would definitely relate to current events over here in like the U.S., um, like primarily uh, like the Black Lives Matter movement. Which does get an uh, actual illusion. It, that gets an yeah. actual straight-up illusion late in the show. Um, uh, and so uh, there's there's a lot uh, about Japanese politics that I had to go and learn thanks to the show, and I am grateful for that because uh, it taught me a lot about uh, where the show is coming from and the audience, audience it was made for. Um, and uh, apart from that, just on a general enjoyment level, I thought the show was just really cool. Um, it's filmed in a very adult style. It's very cinematic. It's got very high production to it. Um, you can tell they really didn't spare expenses. Um, there's a whole lot of different kaijin. There is a, a whole lot of effects going on. Uh it's it's yeah they spared no expense on this thing so uh it's it's an enjoyable watch it's a slow burn as well and there's a lot of piecing together uh what happened in the past and what's going on in the present and how they relate to each other and building up to that ending where it's all revealed like you know how everything's connected yeah i thought it was a really uh well put together show in a lot of ways uh, other than some of the uh, the dropped storylines here or there, mm. because of the shotgun approach it had to trying to get all of these political messages uh, pushed in. Yeah. Okay, so we're all pro Black Sun, uh, which is great uh, because I I don't like the online discourse to this isn't very fruitful, <laughs> but um, like I said, it's also very divided. Um, but yeah, I mean, my overall thing, I'm with you guys. I mean, my as someone that does like the darker side of Common Rider, um, I was interested. And I was also interested because even though I haven't watched the whole series, I do like what I've seen of Black a lot. 
And then, you know, hearing, you know, oh, that uh, it was going to be this big budget production, you know, it, it was going to actually have, you know, these A-list actors and it's going to have like the top talent, you know, you got Higuchi, you got Taguchi, guys that I, I really like. Um, and I and it was like, okay, it's going to drop on Amazon. I have Amazon. It's 10 episodes. It's like, I'm going to try it. Like Common Rider Amazons or Amazon Riders, as, as Kevin said, it's known here. I tr- I don't know. I might go back to it and give it another shot, but um, you know that was like, oh, you know they made a, a show, a common rider show for adults, and it's it felt to me more like a traditional common rider show, but just with more blood and guts. And it's like to me that isn't what adult means. Adult to me means more character driven, with you know adult characters that have adult problems, and you know are talking about things that kid might not understand and so this did feel adult in a way that that didn't and amazon's like i don't know to me uh it just it had a very cheap looking feel and aesthetic and this is like you can tell there's a lot of money on the screen like this is a really great looking series um and then yeah you know common rider is more willing to do these weird side things that are more like adult. Whereas, you know, Ultraman, you know, these days, uh, you know, uh, we've talked about when we talked about Neo Ultra Q and Ultra 7X, um, it's like, you know, we talked about, yeah, you know, they should do like more late night, you know, Kevin went on a whole thing about late night tokusatsu, which is like darker, more adult oriented stuff like Garo and stuff. Um, when we did our Ultraman, uh, Ultra 7X episode and the, um, you know, it's like, yeah, it would be great if Ultraman stepped outside of the box a little more with this stuff. And so it's cool to see Kamen Rider doing it. And so right there, I'm like, okay, you know, this is this is pretty cool. And then, um, I like I said, I understand the complaint that there's no subtlety to it. Because sometimes you can watch something and it's like, okay, just, you know it's so preachy and all this and that. And a lot of stuff is including this. Um, but that's really not something that bothers me so much. Like the movie, um, don't look up from last year, the DiCaprio movie. Um, you know, the big criticism with that was like, Oh, it's not subtle at all. And it's like, well, does it need to be, uh, you know, to me, I mean, I, I, I don't think that's the best movie or anything. I enjoyed it the one time I watched it, but I was never like, oh, this is just too nail, you know, on the nose. Like, that's not something that really bothers me a lot. Uh, it does bother some people. I get it. Um, but then also, like, um, in Japanese media these days, you know, it, it, it does seem like things... Um, you know, try to play both sides a lot when politically, um, you know, or try to appeal more to center right. And, um, you know, it it seems, and I know, and I've even heard Japanese filmmakers, writers say, you know, you know, they're not comfortable going too far into really progressive stuff because it's like, you know, at the end of the day, they need to make money off this stuff. And, you know, we'll get into some some of the things, issues in the Japanese social climate. So just to see something that took this big of a swing, I was like, I have to respect this. Um, I do have some issues with it, with the writing, the storytelling. Um, but it, just the fact that something just took such a huge swing 
and for the most part did it really well. I was like, you know, I'm going to be, you know, championing this show for a long time. And I mean, I don't even, <laughs> I was, you know, I, I, I told Lux this, I was like, you know, I personally lean to the left a lot, but like the very end, I don't even know if I can go there. Okay. So it's not even like, Oh, I agree with everything it's saying. It's just like the fact that it took this swing and did it in a story that I really was able to get invested in, um, is what really helped me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, it's great that we all like the show and, uh, I think, you know, we can talk all we want. I mean, I think we've all mentioned at this point the effects, the fighting, the cinematography, um, the design, you know, is all really good. The, you know, so, I mean, we're all pretty much in, in agreement with the, the, the real strengths of the show. Um, but, uh, you know, before we, we dig into the whole can of worms that is the insanely massive amount of social things that it's addressing. Um, I, I, I want to kind of get, you know, Matt mentioned a little thing of his, but I kind of want to get, you know, what are, what are the things that didn't, because we're going we're gonna to be saying all kinds of great stuff. What are the things that didn't work for you guys about the show? Um, you know, uh, uh, Matt, I'll start with you. I mean, aside from, you know, those little dramatic beats that went on a little too long, like, was there, is there anything that, you know, I do, you have great. I do. With. So again, this is maybe less of a, it's not like a, a super detractor, but I do think the, the show tells this story in tandem. It flashes back and forth between what happens in the past and what's happening in the present. And then it ties those things together. The back and forth can sometimes be, at least for me, it was a bit hard to like follow who was being whom and, and how those things played out. Um, again, that's a minor quibble. I will say one thing that is interesting about the show is you have a lot of sides to everybody's story and people would sort of switch motivations very quickly at times. So you would have one person who would be representing uh, Gorgum as an example, and they would have this radical change of heart. And I won't say that it came out of nowhere because it doesn't. However, it felt almost at times unearned. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't bother me to the point of being a super detractor, that feels like a very anime-ish kind of trope that I'm very used to from a lot of the shows that I've seen. Uh, but I do think it's something that maybe others might struggle with. And, and I think it's uh, it happens with a, um, a pretty high frequency for some of the main characters that we're following. And it's not that it's not believable. It's that it just happens maybe too quickly. However, this being a 10-episode show, I understand why maybe it had to happen that way. Um, but honestly, they'll do like... It keeps it from being a perfect show, but I like this show so much that they're all my my complaints are honestly fairly fairly minor. There's a couple effects things that like don't work, which whatever. I mean, yeah, Tokusatsu. I'm not I'm not yeah. that upset about it. Um, but yeah, overall, like, and can I just say like we've already talked about the design work, but like Higuchi knocks it out of the park. Like the the common rider designs are just freaking fantastic. I like I just them. think they're yeah. really yeah they're very sharp. Um, Kevin, you have any, any, uh, gripes, uh, complaints, emotional outbursts? Um, not, not heavily. Uh, you know, I, I did mention before that the, some of the, some of the Kaijin, uh, 
could have been a little bit more impressive. But again, I think they they allocated the budget to where it was most necessary for, yeah. for most because like they are you know you you think of your traditional common rider kaijin and you know it's usually like a full suit a little more elaborate in this they really are more just like people with animal heads and arms hmm. and that's it you know but but yeah i mean if that's a budget thing and if that's what it costs to get you know higuchi and taguchi on board if that's what it costs to get you know these 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 big actors whatever yeah, I mean, in terms of like kaijin designs that like maybe I would want to see done differently. Belgania is one that is very close to the original design, and maybe they could have done something a little bit more ambitious with him. Um, but you know, that's that's a that's a pretty. You know what I think probably thing. set that back is Higuchi did say that that's his favorite character from the original show, so he was probably like a little too slavish to it. That that makes sense, yeah. Um, along those lines, you know, some of the characters' redemptions and, and forgivenesses seem like they might come a little bit fast. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, that's ten episodes to to work with, so I don't think that that's as as bad there. Um, you know, the ending was something that I found kind of shocking when it happened. But the more <laughs> I thought about it, yeah. Or it, it makes sense, and that's that's maybe a whole discussion we can have about. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll I'll I'll get because I'm the one that brought it up. I'll get to the ending in in a minute. But uh, Lux, I want to hear from you. Uh, you know, things that maybe didn't quite land. You mentioned the I mean, shotgun approach, but that's that's definitely one of my big gripes with the show. Is as much as I like how political it was, and 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 uh, how much it had to say. Uh, it, I think at times it said a little bit too much when it could have focused instead on, uh, a few things and left out other things because, um, uh, I, I would have to say the worst offender of them all, uh, and you already mentioned it was this, uh, the substance that the Kaijin eat called heat heaven. And it's the, the, the blue milk that, uh, they'd milk out of. Uh, the uh, the the king and all of the uh, well, it's implied that all of the upper class kaijin are have access to it, and yeah, it, it they extends, don't age. Yeah, it extends their lives and and has extreme healing powers and and uh, makes them stronger. And uh, so th- that whole plot thread with the heat heaven being not just the stuff from the king, but also. Uh, parts of humans minced into it uh instead of this like weird uh, blue jello cocktail and the blue um, stuff can also make other kaijins and it the the creation king's stuff can make the king stones it's just like it it's like it does everything yeah there's there's just I feel like they were, they they were trying to say something about heat heaven, and it kind of got lost in translation. And I can see why um, I've seen some others online uh, criticizing that aspect of the show and and it putting them off because uh, it really is kind of non sequitur in a way to, to to come out and say, oh well, this is also made from humans. Uh, and it's like, well, that doesn't really endear me to the kaijin very much, but. Uh, at the same time, 
it's it's not really a central focus of the show. Yeah. It's not really in the show that much. It's kind and, of there and luckily at, the, the, at the, the beginning and forgotten. The only character um, that we follow that I guess doesn't stay, you know, heroic and it, it, that uh, the only character that we probably should be endeared to that we see eating it is uh, Shadow Moon. But you know, he will eventually, you know, he he has a heel turn eventually anyway. Um, like Kotaro won't touch the stuff, you know, so, but I get it. Um, and, and otherwise also, I, I agree with Kevin. Um, I don't know what Higuchi was going for with Bilgenia, but, uh, I'm glad he liked it. Um, it's, <laughs> you have all these other really interesting Kaijin designs and they're all different animals and stuff. And then you have Bilgenia who I, I get it. He's, he's supposed to be hearkening back to, uh, common rider black. And back then he's like this, you know, a knight and, uh, in this, he's like this weird gothic knight, uh, but he has an open face mask, so you can see his face and his emotions. Uh, and I understand why that choice is made, uh, because of uh, something that happens uh, toward the end of the show. But for the rest of the show, this design is just really, just it just looks weird. Like he's wearing this big, uh, like, trash bag <laughs> like a, like the, the, yeah, black, yeah, I mean, the black garbage bags that you put your lawn <laughs> like your leaves in, into when you rake your lawn uh, they should have done something to make it like mold to his face or a little better yeah it's just, it's, it's just I, I, it didn't drive put some me. makeup on him or something yeah something uh but uh yeah those those are my main gripes this is the shotgun approach with the, the politics and uh uh, a few questionable uh, designs with the Kaijin as far as uh, how good they look compared to others. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're all more or less in agreement with a lot of this stuff because all of you have mentioned um, things like character uh, motivations and, and things like that. And for me, that's the big one. Um, for me, that's the thing that's keeping me from really giving this like really a perfect score. Um is I think another pass at the script would have helped a lot because um, there's character allegiances that really just kind of change. Even if they're ones that make sense, they just change so abruptly. Almost like, you know, you watch the last season of Game of Thrones and, you know, Daenerys becomes the Mad Queen. It's like, yeah, that's foreshadowed. <laughs> that's foreshadowed a billion years ago, but, like, it happens in, like, two seconds. Um so I, I think for me that's the big thing is like the show seems to kind of have um a problem with characterization um in that way. Um and you know, some examples that, that stand out to me, because um, there's a few. Um like I, I mentioned earlier, the the end part of the, the, the character's trajectory is Shadow Moon goes full magneto. And so, you know, you have a Magneto versus Professor X kind of thing, you know, and, you know, of course you can bring up the famous example of, you know, Professor X and Magneto being, um, you know, like almost surrogates for uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. So you have that dynamic there, and it's it's natural that that's where the characters go, and, I, and there are events that make Shadow Moon turn, but it happens very late within the last couple episodes, and it seems to happen really just uh, quick. And, you know, Shadow Moon, it just in general, kind of flip-flops. He's like, 
you know, uh, I want to kill the creation king. And then later he's like, no, I don't. And then later he's like, I want to become the creation king. And so he's just all over the place. Um, you know, because, yeah, he's like, I, I, I need to... Make sure there's never another creation king, you know, because that, that's the that's kind of their their starting goal that Kotaru and uh, Nobuhiko have is, you know, uh, we want to end the pain of forced kaijin creation, basically. Um, and you know, it, it's said that you know kaijin at this point, you know, can have kaijin babies, and so you know, it's not like oh, we need to get rid of like any trace of them it's like we need to stop this you know forcing humans to become these things selling them on the black market making politicians rich stuff like that um uh and then he's like oh no i'm magneto now so i need to be the creation king and that just happens really quick um bilgenia is another one that within the span of like a single episode he's the same like the way I de- describe that character is he's basically just kind of, he doesn't really have any agency and he just needs to be told what to do. And, you know, he's, he's the goon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's like the main goon for, for Gorgum. Uh, and, you know, he carries out their dirty work and, you know, he, he, he's turned into like a ruthless killer and he kills Aoi's mother and she never really forgives him. And she says, even, you know, their last scene together, she's like, I'm going to kill you one day. And he's like, eh, whatever. Um, you know, he never really seems to feel any remorse for killing her, even after they have, like, a reluctant, I don't want to say friendship, but partnership. Um, and then, you know, at the very end, he's like, you know, oh, yeah, everything, you know, I'm, I'm good now. You know, we don't really get to, and that's in, like, one episode. We don't really get enough time to really see him grapple with, you know, his conflicting allegiances. So he kind of gets a pass. He gets off light. Speaking of getting a pass, um, <laughs> so uh, one of Aoi's friends is uh, named Nick. Um, I mean, we're in, we're in spoiler territory. Anyone that's listening that hasn't watched the show and you care about spoilers, like, stop now, because we're going to get even, I mean, we're going to spoil everything at this point. Um, but go watch it. It's a good show. Um, so Nick, he's a human. Um, he's actually the half Japanese, half uh, black son of Oliver Johnson. And he basically sells out Aoi to the bad guys because they promise that he will become a kaijin if he does that. And they don't honor their word. And, you know, he ends up through circumstances becoming a kaijin anyway um but you know when he's reunited with our you know our heroes after you know this horrible thing that he did like it's not even really like a dress they're just like oh hey nick what's up he's like what's up guys look i'm a kaijin now and everyone's like oh that's cool and it's like do we not like this person was directly responsible for your mother getting killed um and then, uh, so yeah, I mean, those are the, the, the big examples that really are like, you know, maybe this could make more sense. Um, I, are, are those kind of what you guys were thinking of when you were talking about, you know, the, the shifting character motivations? Yeah, that's, yeah. they turn on a whim, honestly. And like, Bell, whatever, Bulgaria, I can't, I can't say his name, but he like, 
he goes from being the goon and killing and murdering and all this stuff. And he ends up being like this, this redemption where he sacrifices himself to save, um, Aoi. And it's like, ah, I don't, I mean, it's again, that moment could have meant something for the show. Had they fleshed out the bond between them two, between the two characters, or at least showed him truly wrestling with everything that he had done up to that point. Yeah. And instead over the course of an episode, he, you know, it's yeah. with, with, it, with him and shadow moon, the arcs make sense. They they're just, just not really, fleshed out the way. Yeah. Right. With Nick, I don't know what, that's just, a they just weird, forgot to yeah. like, <laughs> they, they, he gets his moment, which we haven't talked. He has a moment where he does a thing and you're like, okay, he got to have this moment of comeuppance, but that's not, he serves it to somebody else. And it's like, do they not forget that? As you said, he, screwed them over and like betrayed them it's just well um yeah well that opens another can of worms with there's a couple (laughs) things about the ending and um i mean are you guys good to just get right into the end yeah go right into it all right so the the show ends um you know i mean the the conflict with uh shadow moon and black sun you know that's resolved. You know, Shadow Moon becomes a bad guy. He, you know, loses and, you know, that's that. Um, now, uh, well, one thing with the ending that ties into the character stuff is, so at the end, um, the Prime Minister, who is, like, uh, evil, you know, um, and he he's, there's a lot of Shinzo Abe in him, but also just a lot of just, shitty politician stereotypes just in general the show doesn't like politicians um but you know there are abe correlations you know there's things that he says that are almost directly quoting abe um but at the end of the show nick and um a guy that uh, has an allegiance with both gorgum and kotaro um who is like i don't remember his name but his kaijin form is a bat man yeah he's batman whatever (laughs) Um, so him and Nick at the end, um, the prime minister, I don't know if it's his next in command or whatever. I, I didn't, but, uh, he's driving and he, he gets let off to, uh, to go pee basically. Um, and that's like weird. Cause he's like talking to like the, like, as he's peeing, like saying how like much he talks he, about kaijins not are like not worth the urine in his penis or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really weird. yeah um, it's literally that. So he, he like gets dropped off in this alley and he, he starts to pee. Um, and, uh, Nick and Batman, um, assassinate him. And when I say that, I mean, they like basically from like his lower jaw up, like, cut his head like in half um which first of all this show was completed before the assassination of shinzo abe so again it's like the fact they didn't go and if this was any other thing in existence they probably would have gone back and like reshot a new ending but no Yeah. (laughs) yeah so like that's wild um and uh, but the way that scene is played out, it makes it seem like this other guy in his cabinet that's in his car with him set that assassination up. So so that that's where it's like, okay, we're Nick and the Bat guy working with this 
other guy that's going to become the new prime minister. And then, you know, you see him as the new prime minister and like, he's not, uh, he's, he's got different shitty policies, but he's still like a piece of crap guy. And so it's like, okay, are they like, were they in cahoots with this guy? Like, does anyone else have a, a explanation on that? Or like, am I just missing something? I think it definitely kind of comes out of left field without any sort of um, general knowledge of kind of what the show is trying to talk about uh, in the bigger picture of it. Um, I think with Nick and Batman um, allying with the, the new prime minister and, um, and again, it seems like his, his uh, right hand woman now is, one of the former Gorgon people. Yeah, yeah, because um, yeah, the three high priests. It's yeah, it's, she's in the cabinet. It's 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 sort of this uh, this talking about how leftist movements they're going to take two steps forward or they'll take one step forward, but they're going to take two steps back. They're always going to get poached by the the uh, the authoritarian establishment uh, into being tools uh, of their will. Uh, because the authoritarians at the end of the day, they have control. Um, so I think that's kind of what they're trying to go with there as far as them doing this, this, this turn to side with the new regime and, and off the, uh, the Shinzo Abe stand in. Um, but I, I, it's just, it's not really explicitly shown in the show. So it does just kind of come out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It's like the, the more things, change the more they say the same kind of thing exactly we we see so much of the flashbacks with all of these characters who start with the best of intentions who are you know they monsters come corrupted by yeah. the system basically so i really think that that is uh just a saying you know this this cycle is gonna gonna keep repeating and the the players will change we'll get we'll get new people like nick coming in but like at the end of the day the 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 cycle is not changing and um even even Aoi's movement um as as dramatic and and uh over the top as the you know her like band of child suicide bombers or whatever she's trying to <laughs> to cook up there is like it. I, I think we're supposed to think like, okay, well probably Kotaro wouldn't have approved of this and right. she's just going to become another monster, which again, everyone's morals are compromised yeah. at some point. Yeah. It's pretty, I, I want to actually read a quote. I actually took this directly off the show. So just give me a second, but it's, there's a sequence where the prime minister, and I, I think it's one of the best sequences in the show actually, because the reporters are asking the prime minister all these different questions to explain himself about this new policy. And he has all of his lackeys come up and read off a paper. And then they are like, we don't want to hear from them. We want to hear from you. Mm-hmm. And so he gets up and he literally reads verbatim what they said. And then he's having a conversation as he's walking away from the, or he's sitting down actually next to like his uh, next in command, I guess. And he's like, he says, uh, getting the citizens approval. I never intended to. He goes on. Sorry, I lost my place for a second. Uh, he goes on to say the majority of this world was created without getting their approval. And then he talks about how they don't get that. And that is why they are the opposing party. And it's like, yes, he's he's stating exactly what everybody thinks about with like politicians where they know they're in control 
and they know that, and they know that some people are power. They know that we're powerless. And I'm saying we as in, in people of the show, but like he's stating, he's stating exactly what I think, I think is true. Like the, you have no power when it comes to some of these people and some of the, the policies that they have. And at the end of the show, we see that because when the new prime minister is elected, who's one of his, he's one of the dead prime ministers, you know, former cabinet members. What's the first thing he does? He rearms Japan or he talks about rearming Japan as being like one of his first policies he's doing. He's just expanding upon what the previous guy was doing. So there's never any change. There's never any, um, impact. You can vote all you want to. Like it, it has this idea that like, you're not actually when you vote for, and again, the context of the show, but like, it's like when these people get elected, all we're doing is taking one terrible one, and replacing them with another. And that's how it felt at least to me. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, we, we've brought it up. So, you know, the other element of the ending, and I think this is, you know, people that watch the whole show, this is like, you know, aside from, oh, it's woke, whatever. Probably the biggest complaint, um, is, uh, where Owie winds up. So, you know, where our heroes are, you know, um, Shadow Moon is defeated, but in doing that, uh, Kotaro has to kill the... Uh, creation king and that through circumstances turns him into the new creation king and so he's like so Aoi has to basically you know find it in her to kill him um thus ending this cycle of you know the these you know four these kaijins um you know being you know, people transforming into them and, you know, being sold and as slaves and all this. And, uh, so after that, she, we, we, we catch up with her at, uh, their, their camp and she is with, uh, she's basically taken all of Shadow Moon's, um, child accomplishes, accomplices. And I mean, I say child is in probably young teenagers and up. Yeah. Um, and she's, you know, teaching them how to use bombs and, you know, talking about, you know, the evils of the government. And so she's turned them into a militant, uh, radicals. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, there, you could see that as ambiguous, but I, I, I felt like the show was more or less saying, you know, sometimes you may have to compromise your morals and sometimes the only way to do anything is to is, is you know sometimes violent um you know uh uh reaction and you know i'm just too much of a pacifist at heart to be able to agree with that um and so that's why it's like you know i might not agree with everything we're saying here but for me like i understand why that might turn someone off so yeah. that that that's something that is a little bit more valid but for me and I you know I've said this before just because I may not agree with a thesis or you know political view of of a show a movie doesn't mean I don't like it and so for me you know it's really not that big of a deal because the rest of the show really does work for me but um I don't know where are you I mean where are you guys with this cuz this is like a huge thing people have had a problem with I think, um, and then I'm going to shut up because I actually really want to hear from Lux. Um, so she's essentially like in, in the show, 
it parallels Shadow Moon's like kind of transformation, right? He starts build like there's parts two thirds of the way through the show where Shadow Moon basically also has these little camps and he's also training them to go and assault things. So like it to me felt like she sort of becoming almost a villain character. Otherwise it feels like they're saying Shadow Moon was actually right in a way. Cause yeah, I mean like I, I think I, it directly. Yeah. I, I didn't see that as being like, Oh, like with this ominous, like she's the bad guy now. It, it, it I don't know. I, the show felt almost like, an endorsement of it. I don't know that for I sure. I could see that either way. I, I could definitely see that either way. I am also with you. And actually I'm going to read this, uh, another quote real quick, because I think what resonates with me and I'm just, I'm, I'm a sucker for anything that's going to give you a glimpse of hope and redemption. So the quote that we've talked about, and we've kind of quote said a couple times, I think, but it's the value of Kaijin and human lives outweighs that of the earth. And then the next part of that quote, there isn't even, there isn't even one, gram of difference in their worth that to me is the message that like i think resonates with me a lot more it's that it's saying just because you exist you are you have value and you have worth and then we also find out obviously kaijins are human but it just it ties all those things together and that's the thing that i think resonates with me the most so when i get to the end of the show i have no idea how to process that because (laughs) it's like Sort of, and, and listen, I, I, um, I mean, you think of things like, like World War II. Like, there's, there's times when I feel like there were wars and things that had to happen because if you did nothing, then the oppressor just consistently wins. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, and I can see like a, a righteous anger playing out in that way, in a, in a violent way. But I, I won't, I don't know that that would ever be me. Yeah, I, so anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna say one thing, and then let Lux. Uh, run the floor here. Um, the the most good faith reading I can make into the ending is well, you know, Owie isn't saying they're gonna go directly murder people, you know, bomb places where there's civilians. We see her arming her her uh, army and you know teaching them combat things like that. Um, but, you know, I mean, if, if I can give you a real-life example, you know, uh, in real life, you know, the Black Panthers, for example, you know, they famously for a long time marched around with, with you know, AKs, guns, and stuff like that. And um, the, the truth of the Black Panthers is they were, I mean, there, there's the new Black Panther Party now, which is a completely different set of worms and not the best people. But the original Black Panthers, when they were, would, would, you know, carry those weapons, it would be for protection. And I, I, you know, you, you guys know me outside of, you know, this podcast. So, you know, I'm very like in today's climate, I am very weird and like phobic of public shootings and guns. So not that I'm endorsing this, but it was because they had to arm themselves because they knew the cops were coming and they knew that there was this reputation of them that was being spun in a very negative light. When in real life, the original Black Panther Party were very humanitarian, very charitable to people of all walks of life. So, you know, you could just also be like, okay, she is arming these these people in case some shit goes down. You know, so that's the best faith reading I can do. And I don't know that I even truly believe that about the ending, but I feel like that interpretation is worth 
maybe acknowledging. But uh, Lux, I'm going to let you run with this because, you know, you have, you know, a, a history of, you know, knowing a lot about activism and, you know, um, activist groups and, and, and these kinds of things. So, you know, I mean, where are you on, on this ending and where it brings Aoi and her, I guess, child soldiers? <laughs> Um, uh, I think Matt hit it right on the head that there's, there's definitely a thing going on as far as comparing and contrasting the motivations and heel turn of Shadow Moon uh, versus the radicalization of Aoi uh, across the show. And um, really what, I'm, what, I, what I, I think is a theme that is seen in the show at large and in a lot of the characters, uh, and, it's, and it's a theme shown both in the past and in the present is this progression as far as uh, starting with noble goals, facing intense oppression, and that oppression then radicalizing you to the point that you are uh, becoming violent. And uh, it's the only way that you feel like you still have hope. Um, I don't personally uh think that Aoi at the end of the show has come to the right conclusion as far as uh bringing in child soldiers basically uh, to <laughs> yeah. train at her uh, at her uh terrorist camp yeah, don't do that <laughs> um don't do that that's bad um don't <laughs> praise them for how good they are at building bombs uh, <laughs> um but I, I want to backtrack a little bit here to talk about um, where it all kind of starts up in the show uh, with Shadow Moon. Um, like when he gets out of prison, he he the first place he goes to is where he, his motorcycle is hidden, and it's the, the formal the former uh, like hiding place uh, for him and his friends of the Gorgon Party, and they're like sort of splinter group away from. The, the higher-ups in the Gorgon Party who became the three priests and kind of sold themselves out to the government. Um, the, the, he, he kind of goes through like the, these this pictures and everything from the past, and he's reminiscing, and he wants to continue what they were doing in the past, which uh, in the flashbacks we see that their splinter group um, had become uh, more radicalized because of... Uh, the splitting of the Gorgon Party and feeling betrayed by uh, the people who were uh, became the three priests and sold them out, basically, to the government uh, in order to uh, attain power. Um, they, in the past, it ends up with their plan to uh, kidnap the Creation King and take the son of the Prime Minister hostage uh, and hold him and issue demands. Um, it's then in the present, uh, Shadow Moon comes up with the plan where he wants to kill the Creation King and liberate all of the uh, humans and Kaijin who are imprisoned at the now uh, Gorgum headquarters. That's also the, probably the, the worst rescue operation I've ever seen in yeah, anything. Yeah, you, you, you see <laughs> Shadow Moon recruit and build up his own uh, like little terrorist task force, and did they, anyone they, that they wanted to save live through that? 
<laughs> yeah, that's I, that, I don't think anybody got out alive except for Aoi and Shadow Moon. Yeah, and that's what that's that's where kind of where I was getting at is they they go in and they they're they're trying to execute this plan and save everybody, uh, and in the process, the just the police, this overwhelming force of like this the SWAT teams comes comes showering down with a hail of gunfire on them, and they just indiscriminately kill. Uh, all of the of uh, Shadowman's terrorist group, they kill all of the prisoners that they have liberated. There's no distinction between the kaijin and the humans. They just go in and they kill everybody because the the authoritarian regime just wants to put it all down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with Shadow Moon and Awe being the only people to walk away from this alive, um, and again Awe, her best friend and you know, sort of boyfriend Shinsuke, uh, he's also killed, uh, not in that process, but you know, shortly afterwards, lynched. Uh, he's lynched. He's literally lynched and hung. Yeah. Um, this, that the death of Shinsuke and the death of all of those people radicalizes both of them. Uh, uh, Moon sees, sees the body, the, the lynching, uh, the aftermath, and that's when he basically just snaps. And you yeah. see at the, the end of that episode, he goes and uh, is one of the most gruesome things in the whole show. He finds the, the leader of the anti-Kaijin uh, protesters who killed uh, Shinsuke earlier in the episode. And he just grabs this dude's head and uh, without any cutaway, uh, squishes it. It just head explodes and there's this wonderful, awesome heavy metal riff just underneath. Just it's really cool, but it is really gruesome. <laughs> um, and that's when it's like, wow, he has really gone extreme. He's, he's no yeah. longer a good guy. Um, and then you and then you cut to Aoi, uh, who only a couple episodes later she's doing her thing with Bill Genia, and uh, she learns about the past uh, with the Kaijin actually being human experiments, um, and they're all actually humans. And she has this speech at the end of episode nine, where she kind of like uh, gets on her phone and somehow uh, gets like hacked into like everybody's cell phones and and does this speech (laughs) at the UN over her phone from uh, the abandoned bus out in the parking lot that uh, used to be Kotaro's home. And she does this speech to the UN and like everybody in Japan uh, about basically uh, <laughs> uh, what Malcolm X would, would have said back in, uh, with the Black Panthers. Like you said, uh, you got to pick up the gun to put down the gun. Um, she's fully been radicalized at that point. She sees uh, no other option but to fight uh, for the rights. Yeah. There's no longer peaceful protest as an option. And for her. I, I like that. I think, I think, uh, that scene is where you sense Shiraishi as a storyteller, where you sense his anger the most because she literally breaks the fourth wall at one point, you know, the framing, you know, of, Oh, her talking into a phone, you know, the little outline of the phone disappears and she's literally just talking into the camera and she says, you, yeah, you watching at home, are you laughing? Why are you laughing? This is the world around you. Why aren't you angry? Like you should be furious. And it's like, oh, okay, yes, I yes, I'm very angry. 
just stop yelling. Um, <laughs> and so, so I mean, again, we're not dealing with subtlety here. Um, and you know, to the show's credit, yeah, all the issues they're talking about are things that we should all be very angry about. Um, so on a, yeah. uh, uh oh, go ahead. Just, just, uh, not, not to completely derail us, but on a, on a like meta level, her being a mantis, which is a more like predatory animal than mm. you know, our, our prior character hero, like, uh, I, I'm wondering how much we're supposed to read into that. If that was, you know, something that was deeply considered. I mean, there was yeah. a, there was a mantis Kaijin in, in the previous version of black who was a villain, uh, but you know, there's not a, there's not a whole lot of overlap in their story arcs. Right. Um, so I think as, as far as what her character is alluding to in the real life, um, which we'll get into later when we start going over all of the stuff that happened in the past in Japan, which kind of influenced all of these different storylines. Uh, she is an allegory almost for an actual person in real life who was a terrorist and who, uh, is basically a villain, uh, a militant leftist. So I definitely see her being a mantis, uh, being possibly a very conscious decision. Um, there's one more very controversial part of the ending that I want to get to, but I just had a thought, so like this will take like two seconds. Um, we need to uh, uh, just have a quick... Um, you know, tribute to uh, her fallen father, who is turned into a kaijin, and uh, he becomes crab. He literally Become becomes crab. Yes, he becomes <laughs> crab. Um, and uh, his uh, his arm, which looks delicious, um, is then buried. Um, and uh, just a shout out to uh, dead uh, crab dad. Speaking of though, like that's another like thing that was weird. Like, why was how did they brainwash him into like trying to kill her? It seemed like they were calling back to, uh, and just only one example of it, of in the original Common Rider Black, how Gorgon would turn regular people into slaves yeah. for them. They, they would turn them into kaijin and have them do their will. Um, it just seemed like it was kind of alluding back to that. That that whole thing was basically the enzyme fight from Guyver. I was literally thinking that, Kevin, <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in the show that reminds me of Guyver. Okay, um, before we open up our can of 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 real life uh uh worms here um so another thing that a lot of people have just thought you know this is just too much i'm completely turned off you know people saying it's in bad taste it's tone deaf whatever um is we we had mentioned earlier um you know the the rallies you know the kaijin rights rallies and they do uh mimic a lot of real life you know rights ish protests and stuff like you know one of the big slogans is stop kaijin hate you know um here you know uh, during covid we had you know stop asian hate you know with the increase in in hate crimes against asians um, and, uh, there may even be a Kaijin Lives Matter thing at some point, but the most direct thing, uh, that Americans will relate to, um, and why it's very touchy is at the end, you know, uh, juxtaposed, you know, with Aoi's radicalization, you see, you know, police just arresting left and right, you know, these Kaijin in the streets, you know, and it's like, you know, 
the 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 system that's oppressive is you know will not stop until it's like it's going to try its best to stamp these people out. And there is a scene where one of the kaijin uh, is being arrested and um, an officer is kneeling on his neck and he's saying, you know, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Um, So very, very, very heavy-handed reference to George Floyd um, and, you know, that whole awful thing that, you know, really had a re- big resurgence in Black Lives Matters protests. And, um, I mean, you guys, I, I want you guys to feel free to give your opinion on it. And, and this is one where I really, I don't think there's a wrong opinion here. Um, speaking as the black guy uh, in the room, um, I... <sighs> I struggle because I do think, again, this is also a Japanese show, and they're very far away from us, you know, so it it probably is going to have a little bit more detachment for a Japanese audience than us who are here in the U.S. and saw all this happen. Uh, I I personally, I'm I'm not offended by it. You know, I, I it's also, I don't think it's my place to say whether or not anyone should be offended by it. I think it's kind of like unintentionally <laughs> funny in that it goes so extreme. Um, and part of me also commends the just audacity and uh, wild, you know, ama- what the mania <laughs> of someone that would include such a reference. It's a little bit in poor taste, but it's also maybe needed for some people viewing. And so that is why I, you know, I, I, and it, it's a sensitive topic for me too. Um, I, I am not upset about it. Um, I can't, but I, it's one of those things where it's like, if someone's just like, okay, that it's just too much. I get it. But, that's also one of the things where, like, in seeing the online discourse, I don't know, I'm just looking in, I'm, I'm looking on the internet as a mistake, but I'm just seeing a lot of, like, oh, I can't believe it, it went this far woke, you know, and, and that is not what, I, what I'm cool with. If someone finds it offensive because it, they think it's in poor taste to so heavily direct, directly reference an awful thing that happened in real life recently... Like I respect that, but I don't know. For me, I, I, it, it didn't. It wasn't a turnoff for me. Um, so the, the scene plays out, and it's it's such a that specific scene is every bit of like twenty seconds, twenty five seconds, and I say that because it's as basically what's happening is the prime minister, the new prime minister is elected, um, and you get this like musical montage of all the terrible things that's happening. Prime Minister gives a speech about um, rearming Japan. You start seeing the protests being cracked down on. You see the guy getting arrested, and then you see him very quickly uh, being thrown to the ground. And basically, at that point, they jump on his neck, and he's saying he can't he can't breathe. So it's done in a really quick sort of way, and plays such a small thing in the show that, like, no, that inclusion doesn't bother me. Um, I think it's horrible and horrific. I also think it fits the tone of the show when everything the Kaijins had been going up going through to up to that point like we had a lynching which by the way that scene is awful 
because when you finally see what happened to the kid's body, like his face is basically falling off his, like, it's just, it's disgusting. So like the scene fits what's happening to the Kaijins within the, the, the context of the show. Um, I, I could see the, the argument of it being just too self-referential to something that just is sort of in like recent memory. I think that's valid. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that moment, was I offended? No. Okay. Um, speaking as the uh, person uh, falling under the LGBTQ uh, banner uh, here on the forum, um, I'm non-binary and pansexual. Um, I definitely uh, picked up on some reads in this show, obviously, um, when it started talking about uh, rounding up, uh, you know, the disabled and the elderly, the LGBT, and um, because they aren't productive to society, uh, they aren't going to reproduce. Um, it's definitely, obviously, a, a real life nod to like forced sterilization programs in Japan and that kind of stuff. But it also touches on fears that we have here um, with laws that obviously keep getting progressively worse as far as passing laws that ban uh, transgender medical care um, and, and that kind of stuff and, and repealing rights uh, uh, like Roe v. Wade and. Uh, re- and you know, talks of repealing rights for um, gay people, talks of repealing rights for blacks uh, and other minorities. It's uh, it's something that's it's that's definitely uh, something that's easy to project. Um, even though the show isn't made for us, it's made for a Japanese audience. I think as far as the that scene that's hearkening directly to George Floyd. My main takeaway uh, wasn't just that it was, you know, blatantly the like word for word. I, I can't breathe, and the cops got his, you know, knee down on his neck. Um, the thing I took away from that scene was that in the background, everybody walking about uh, on the sidewalk just was just like, okay, this is just kind of happening, and they just kind of walk by. Mm-hmm. They, they don't even pay it any mind, and that absolutely speaks to um what Awe was saying at the the at the end of episode nine um she was trying to reach out to these people and say hey you you know this is terrible you should feel horrible about this you need to help you know do something we need allies uh we need accomplices to help us fight against this uh and then we see that in the end uh after everything goes down uh, all the people who aren't part of these uh, oppressed groups uh, that you know just live their uh, normal day to day lives and they don't have to deal with this kind of stuff um, that they, they, they just they just kind of you know they they still turn a blind eye to it and that's a big part of why I think she felt hopeless and went to the extent of you know recruiting this. Uh, these child soldiers, because uh, again, that 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 whole scene also ties into it. It's right after that it cuts to the one little girl um, with her little, you know, her sign, who's like, you know, pro immigration and saying, you know, immigrants are you know, like you know, humans too, uh, against this huge group of anti-immigration protesters, uh, and it's like, well, this is what the opposition has been reduced to at this point. Uh, authoritarianism has pushed so far 
down, uh, uh, put the boot so far down on our necks that all that's left is this little girl, and she's clinging to whoever she can to radicalize them with her and do something about it. Um, and I, again, I don't agree necessarily with how far she's taking it, but it's, it's easy to see why she's been radicalized that far. And, uh, and we'll get into later why, uh, this calls back to the, the same things actually happening in real life in Japan. Uh, I mean, it is an overt reference. However, in, in the, the case of this, like, take it in a vacuum uh and it still works mm-hmm. you know it's, it's one of those things of like okay the the x-men is about people you know uh building robots to to go round up this minority group but this other minority group might also uh empathize with that so mm-hmm. uh and you know maybe um you know people were i i did see people taking issues of like oh well that's that's not how George Floyd ha- happened exactly. And like, yeah, but this isn't literally George Floyd. This is, <laughs> yeah, this yeah. is an allegory here. So right. it's, you know, kind of, um, uh, and, and there is brutality of all sorts, uh, across multiple societies. And I think that this can be a reflection of multiple things. Yep. So, um, you know, well, yeah, some people don't understand how allegory works. <laughs> <laughs> me and right. me and Lux were talking about that last night. Um, so, uh, speaking of allegory and real life um, events and things, uh, this is where we are just gonna. Uh, there's a lot here, um, but we're gonna try and uh, kind of do this on like a crash course 101 basis. If any of this sounds interesting, you know the internet can be your friend when you want it to. And there's a lot of resources, articles, and stuff that um, you can find. Um, so, obviously, to address a show this political, you know, we, had, we, we wanted to do some research and be like, okay, this is obviously what this is talking about. Um, so there's a lot here. Um, so, Matt, I know it's late. Don't worry. We're going to get through this as soon as we can. We're going to get you some sleep, okay? Um, so, um, I mean, I, I think, um, uh, we, we had mentioned earlier, you know, the, the, the pure blood ethnicity, uh, theory stuff. Um, and we've, we've, I think we've mentioned this a few times before. There was the one, um, uh, uh, Okamoto film, Blood Type Blue, we did an episode on, um, and, uh, you know, there's a... In Japan, at one point, you know, you're you you could be judged by your blood type. You know, you'd have to be a certain blood type to get a certain job, stuff like that. But um, uh, Japan, uh, you know, um, the more uh, I guess what we would call in America right wing or um, uh, conservative um, uh, people in Japan, there is a. a, a um, you know, a small but probably influential enough group of them that, that subscribe to, you know, these these ideas of pure blood. You know, I mean, we have that here in America with, you know, white supremacists and things like that. Um, but essentially wh- where that ca- came about is, you know, um, ever since Japan's uh, uh, defeat in World War II, you know, certain 
politicians and conservative groups have adopted this narrative of you know Japan, Japanese um, homogeneity. Homogen- God damn it! Someone say this word for me. <laughs> no one wants to help me. Okay. <laughs> homogeneity. <laughs> Thank you. Homogeneity. Of this- I was just having you fun. I was having fun listening to you struggle. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, we do that to you. So <laughs> Sam, I was there. Um, but basically, you know, unmixing from other groups, uh, you know, and having you know that pure Japanese bloodline, and um, and you know, because of this, you know. Japan has been having fewer children and more elderly, things like that, where, um, you know, I get, like you could, there could be multiple podcasts about just any sentence I'm about to say. So there's a ton of resources out there if you want to know more. But, you know, increasing medical costs to the point of, you know, the, the pension system, you know, uh, being in, in under distress. Um, and, and Japan had even practiced eugenics. Um, it was legal. There was a eugenics protection law um, that wasn't abolished until 1996, and that would have allow forced sterilizations. Again, like uh, you know, Lux was saying, um, you know, about you know the these people that were rounded up and kind of basically just fed into a meat grinder in this show. Um, but forced sterilizations and abortions for people with various genetic disorders, mental disorders, physical handicaps. Again, not till 1996. You know, that was a thing that was just like, okay. Um, and, you know, with racial and, and, and uh, uh, you know, prejudice issues, you know, numerous, you know, and they exist in every country, you know, here, Japan, you know, and, you know, it, this isn't like a, oh, look at all the problems Japan has thing, but this is also a look at all the problems Japan has show. Um, so it's going to, you know, Japan, like any country, has great things, but the, the, the issues are very real and worth being angry about, just like they are here and across the world. Um, but, you know, Japan still, to this day, does not have any laws that prohibit discrimination based on race, religion, ethnicity. Um, in 2017, a survey of about 2,044 um, foreigners in Japan 39% of those foreigners had, had uh, said that at some point in their residency there, they were refused housing because they weren't Japanese. Um, Japan didn't have protections for uh, indigenous Ainu people um, there until 2019, only a few years ago. Um, and, and Ainu, uh, they weren't even recognized by the government as you know a, 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 a group until 2008. Um, In 2017, Japan's first national human rights survey of foreign residents reported widespread discrimination in employment, housing, taunts on the street. And that's a big one that you see in Kamen Rider Black is um, these racist groups that are marching down the street with these big signs and megaphones and flags and things like that. That is something that happens in Japan. And it's not even like, oh, a scheduled protest. It's just their day-to-day just go down the street and just like, harass people um and there's uh yakuza people that do that sometimes in fact uh we've talked about this before but um that's one of the things in uh gmk um those uh uh motorcycle guys that baragon kills at the beginning are are people like this you know these really like super right-wing um groups that are you know uh racist groups essentially and um you know kaneko I guess wasn't having any of that, and so they became fodder for Baragon. Um, 
and uh and then you know uh the the show directly references lgbtq as people that the government are rounding up and making into this heat heaven stuff and uh you know also converting into kaijin that are sold as slaves um you know and they even do like their own almost like a a, a recreation of the the uh the backyard party scene and and get out with the auction so in Japan, there's actually no legal protections in place for LGBTQ at all. In fact, uh, Japan requires transgender citizens to undergo sterilization, which Bird kind of talked about, um, before they can even be legally recognized, which is just... I, uh, That's horrible. Japan is also... Yeah, I... Yeah. Uh, Japan is the only uh, group of seven country, which, by the way, is uh, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, and then the United Kingdom and, and the USA... Uh, that does not allow same-sex marriage. Um, not only can same-sex couples not marry, but they also can't inherit assets. Uh, they ha- have no parental rights to each other's children. And actually, last last month, um, a Tokyo court ruled that Japan's ban on same-sex marriage was, in fact, constitutional. Um, only heterosexual women are eligible for artificial insemination. Uh, this is just an awful laundry list of things, by the way. <laughs> Uh, there are no regulations against LGBTQ discrimination in the workplace. Like uh, you're just, I, yeah, I'm an HR guy. So like, I just can't even fathom that. Um, some same sex couples have actually done ado- uh, adult adoption to legally live as a family. That so like, like one adopted the, the other. <laughs> Uh, and then of course, um, gay and bisexual men can only donate blood after a six months abstinence from sex. Uh, women and heterosexual men have to wait six months after being with a new sexual partner. So that's like a cliff notes version of all some of the not so great stuff Um, going on. Interesting observation. The end of the show, the, uh, the protesters, you know, after shadow moon, you know, uh, the, the crushes, the guy's head, you know, these harassing, racist groups in the street um they're they're uh now harassing immigrants instead of kaijin and um that's another thing that is like we said there's a shotgun approach to this where shiraishi was just like i'm angry about everything and i'm not gonna take it anymore but i guess i have to because it's reality um so uh uh so there's also the issue of civic rights for foreigners in Japan. Japan has uh, historically been uh, not so great with, you know, xenophobia issues. You know, the the stereotype is the guys on the truck, like we uh, we were talking about, you know, shouting, you know, white devils go home or whatever. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's a problem. Uh, across the board for people who are there for a long time. Um, and that means generationally, uh, you know, uh, it's particularly with a lot of Korean immigrants, uh, even people who have been there, like their grandparents were the ones who immigrated, like they're still not citizens because unlike the U S where if you're born somewhere, you're just automatically a citizen, uh, Japan, it's still that bloodline based nonsense. And uh, you see all of this, crap under the Abe administration trying to promote more babies being born in Japan uh, because of the decrease in population. Well, that's a thing that you see actually across most of the developed world. The thing is most of the developed world has better immigration policies. Mm. 
So, you know, uh, Japan is uh, against um, granting refugee status, uh, and they've been criticized for the uh, by the United Nations uh, about this, and um, they will detain foreign nationals for extended periods of time, and that's kind of a violation of human rights. There was one and, guy that died there; like he was detained, and like they just like weren't feeding him or something. That was yeah. that was recently. There was also during the COVID nineteen outbreak. There was a, a breakout at one of their detention centers, and a bunch of people died. Oh, look at that! So, so yeah, there's this real like conflict between this desire to remain a homogenous society, but also needing workers. And you know, then now they're they're asking for foreign workers to come and 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 work to alleviate the labor shortages, but not actually wanting to have these people be a part of the society. Um, so, you know, if you have, um, you know, at this point it's, it's 2.2% of the population there is, is foreigners and you treat them like dirt. It's, uh, it's definitely a social issue that is continuing to be the case. Yeah. Um, so we've, talked a couple times now, you know, uh, the 60s flashbacks um, to where Gorgum is formed as a, uh, you know, a, 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 a civil rights um, activism group. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the trajectory of Gorgum reflects a lot of real life stuff from the formation of these groups to how they splinter. Um, so we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, uh now, uh, Lux has put together a bunch of notes on, uh, you know, an example of these protests and, and a little history lesson for us. So uh, I'm going to give them the floor here to um, tell us a little bit about, uh, I guess, give us some real-life context uh, for this. Before I do that, can you give me any real-life context to Oliver Johnson's horrible-looking soup? Um, no. Okay. What about his What about his beard? Because that is <laughs> that beard. I, I, I just want to sidebar. That has to be the worst beard I've ever yeah, seen. Yeah, the, the more on modern TV show. Yeah, the the older <laughs> Oliver Johnson has like he looks like a Tyler Perry character with like really bad gray fake beards and stuff. I do want to point out that um, after that scene with the horrible looking soup that he made, um, every time you see them after that, you see them eating cup noodles. Uh, so they no longer let him cook. They just choose to eat <laughs> cup noodles instead. That's probably deserved. Um, uh, an interesting nope. side note, uh, Kamen Rider started in 1971. Cup noodles also started in 1971 in the marketplace. All right, there we go. It's, an, it's a 50th anniversary of cup noodle uh, as well. Um, but tell us about these ANPO protests. Uh, Matt and I give a really brief kind of uh, uh, talk about it on our episode for, for uh, the movie The Final War, but uh, let's let's get into the nitty-gritty here. Yeah, I have a lot here, so uh, get ready for a little bit of a history lesson. Um, and it definitely is reflected in Common Rider Black Sun as far as uh, the, the all of the, the stuff that you see in the past and those flashbacks to the 70s um, are sort of a reflection of all of this stuff that was happening in real life back then. Um, 
So let's just get to the nitty gritty of it. Um, the Alpo protests were a, a series of these protests throughout Japan in uh, 1959, 1960 um, against the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty, which was the treaty that was signed at the end of World War II when Japan, uh, uh, you know, uh, gave up and they let U.S. basically write this treaty for them and uh, impose their will. Uh, established all these military bases and and set up sort of their own authoritarian uh, regime uh, in the shadow of a, a Japanese new government. Um, so uh, the treaty uh, allowed the U.S. to maintain all these bases and whatnot. The name of the protest comes from a shortened version of the Japanese term for security treaty. So these protests in 1959-60 were staged in opposition to a revision of that treaty uh, and eventually grew to become the largest popular protest in Japan's modern era. Uh, many, Jap many on the Japanese left side of the political spectrum and even conservatives on the right uh, united in trying to uh, chart a more neutral course during this Cold War era uh, and hope to get rid of the treaty. Uh, in order to separate themselves from the whole Cold War thing in this U.S.-Japan alliance. Uh, the Japanese government began pushing for this revision to the treaty uh, as early as 1952, but President Eisenhower's administration at the time wasn't going to have it. Um, and there was, as a result, during the whole time period, there was still growing anti-U.S. Uh, military-based movements in Japan uh, and culminating in some even more violent protests throughout the 50s, which eventually spurred the U.S. to come to the table uh, for these revisions in 59 and, and 1960. Um, the negotiations began in 1958, and the new treaty was signed by Eisenhower and Prime Minister Nobusuke Kishi uh, of the LDP at a ceremony in Washington, D.C. In, in January of 1960. Um, from a Japanese perspective, the new treaty uh, was a big improvement. Uh, uh, it it uh, committed the United States to uh, defend Japan in an attack, um, uh, required prior consultation with the Japanese government before dispatching U.S. forces uh, based in Japan overseas. And, uh, and most importantly, it removed a clause that was pre-authorizing suppression of domestic disturbances in Japan by U.S. military force, basically giving the U.S. military a license to just go and quell any protests that they saw they didn't like in Japan without any oversight from the Japanese government. So even though the revised treaty was better than the original treaty, uh, groups decided that they wanted to oppose this one as well. Um, Kishi anticipated this, though, because protests uh, in the fall of 1958, uh, sorry, uh, protests, uh, he, he anticipated the protests would arise. And in the fall of 1958, he attempted to pass a police duties bill, which would have given police in Japan new powers of warrantless search and seizure in order to target protesters ahead of treaty ratification. Uh, again, this is pointing toward uh, this overreach of power using the police uh, by uh, the LDP government. Uh, to quell protests. Um, however, the law uh, reminded many in Japan of pre-World War II authoritarianism and, and provoked widespread outrage. Um, a nationwide coalition of political and civic organizations opposed this police bill, and Kishi was forced to withdraw it. Um, this only emboldened the protesters because they had gotten a victory, 
And instead of disbanding, this coalition of anti-police bill uh, remained active and recruited new member organizations to oppose the security treaty, uh, which was in its final stages of negotiation at the time. So this protest movement uh, it continued to gradually just keep getting larger and larger, uh, especially with the Cold War tensions uh, ramping up at the time. Uh, and the, everyone was just scared that this treaty would lock Japan into one side of, of this dangerous global conflict uh, should things go south between the U.S. and Russia. Um, so although there was opposition uh, in the Japan Socialist Party, uh, and they controlled all the, they only controlled about a third of the seats in the Diet, uh, and which is the Japanese equivalent of Congress, and thus lacked the votes to prevent ratification. And so they use uh, their a variety of tactics to drag out debates, basically filibustering, uh, in hopes of preventing this ratification before Eisenhower showed up uh, and make uh, the Prime Minister uh, uh, Kishi look bad in front of Eisenhower after he invited him to celebrate this whole, you know, peace, this whole negotiation of the treaty. Um, so as uh, the diet session was scheduled to end almost a month before Eisenhower's visit, uh, and ratification was still being stalled, um, late in the evening on May 19th in 1960, uh, Kishi took a desperate measure and suddenly called for a 50-day extension of the diet session. Uh, and this was in defiance of any sort of norms at the time. They, the they would just, you know, like here in the U.S., Congress would just, they will go on vacation and they'll just leave whatever is on the table on the table and they won't finish it. Uh, but no, Kishi wanted this to pass. So in defiance of those norms and over opposition, even from the LD, his, his fellow people in the LDB party, um, he staged a sit-in, uh, 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 sorry, the Socialist Diet members staged a sit-in against this in the Diet uh, and Kishi took an unprecedented step of calling 500 police officers into the Diet building and having all of the socialists and every other party uh, removed from the building. Uh, and thereafter, with only the LDP party present, uh, passed this ratification. And uh, with only members of them present, uh, uh, revised the treaty. Uh, and basically assured without any uh, opposition from any of the other parties that this was going to pass. Um, he got huge criticism from this from everybody in a political spectrum. Uh, obviously, this was extremely unpopular uh, as like a breach of power. Um, so in late in late May and early June of 1960, uh, these anti-treaty protests increased in size tremendously. If you look up pictures, there's just huge, ginormous crowds outside the Diet Building and uh, his prime uh, the prime minister's residence. Um, as these, these ordinary citizens were just starting to take to the streets, not just the protesters, not just ordinary people were so mad they came out to protest. And uh, these large protests uh, in June uh, also resulted in the So uh, Yo Labor Federation uh, doing a nationwide general strike. Uh, and on June 15th, that strike involved 6.4 million workers across the country, uh, making it the largest strike in Japan's history. Uh, at the end of that day, on June 15th, uh, hundreds of thousands of protesters surrounded the Diet Building and smashed their way into the Diet Compound itself, uh, which led into a violent clash with police. And uh, a Tokyo University student was killed in that whole altercation as they were uh, storming the Diet Building. Uh, in the aftermath of the incident, the, uh, the planned visit by Eisenhower was obviously canceled. 
and uh, Prime Minister Kishi uh, then resigned. Um, the anti-American aspect of the protests and uh, this cancelization of Eisenhower's visit brought the U.S.-Japan relations uh, understandably to a very low level, the lowest since the end of World War II. Uh, in Japan, protests spurred a new wave of right-wing activism because of this. Um, uh, to relate this to today, sort of like January 6th, uh, except reversed, um, with all of these left-wing activists uh, and then right-wing activists taking over the Capitol and now uh, left-wing activism rising up again. Uh, as there's this back and forth. So uh, with the left-wing doing all of this, then the right-wing push back uh, and got extreme and got violent. And so eventually this culminated in the assassination of the Socialist Party chairman, uh, Inajiro Asanuma, during a televised election uh, a debate in the fall of 1960. So they, they assassinated this guy on TV. Um, they asked, the assassination weakened the Japanese Socialist Party because uh, and they were already facing criticism over the context of this, the anti-treaty protest and the storming of the Diet Building. Um, Japanese students who were in college or graduate school between 1960 and 1970 uh, protested against the security treaty uh, and are often remembered as the Anpo generation. Um, suggesting this being the defining role of that generation, that being the anti-treaty protests. Um, however, the protests had splintering effect on student movement, um, and they had disagreements over who was to blame for the failure of stopping this treaty, and there started to be a lot of infighting. So this previously unified nationwide uh, student network called the Zingakuren disintegrated, uh, and then there was a bunch of warring factions, and they all went extremist. And it paved the, right, paved the way for this rise of this uh, radical uh, leftist, communist, Marxist, uh, terrorist sects that would play a, a leading role in Japanese university protests in the late 60s. And this is what we start to see in Common Writer Black Sun with the Corgan Party. When they, you first encounter them in the show, they are all of these just, you know, university students, and they are there to protest, and a lot of them have been extremely radicalized because of oppression uh so it's this is definitely something that even though this happened before the uh, people who made the show were born uh shiraishi i think you said burn before we started this wasn't born until a few years later after all of this happened um this still this trickles down this is this is part of japanese history and something that a japanese viewer of common writer black sun would pick up on is something that they would have seen in their history books or possibly had lived through. And that leads kind of into the creation of the Japanese Red Army, right? That's correct. And this is where we start to see parallels with uh, Aoi at the end of the show. And um, this, this was formed in 1971. Correct. Same year this, the Common Rider came out. Yes, this is again, 1971, the uh, Japanese Red Army was formed. Um, they were a militant communist organization uh, founded in 1971 by uh, Fusako Shigenobu, uh, a woman, and uh, Suyoshi Okadaira. And there's primary made up of radicals from all these student groups who protested uh, the U.S. military bases during the 60s, as well as outcasts, outcasts from other leftist extremist organizations that were operating in Japan at the time. Uh, their stated goals were to overthrow the Japanese government, 
eliminate the Japanese monarchy and help bring about the worldwide communist revolution. Uh, they were most active in the 70s and the 80s and maintained close ties uh, with the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, uh, which I'll just call the PFLP from here on, uh, led by uh, Wadi Haddad, who uh, was infamous in the 60s and 70s for organizing all these plane hijackings to bring international awareness to uh, the plight of the Palestinian people and Palestinian people's rights. Because uh, the PFLP was working against both the Israeli government as, at the time, uh, as well as Hamas in Palestine. Uh, they didn't agree with either of the governments, and they, they thought that Palestinian, Palestinian rights were more important than uh, what either of those governments were seeking. Uh, the JRA, though, the Japanese Red Army, is assumed to have always been dependent on these PFLP organizations for its training uh, and their financing and their weaponry. Uh, most of the JRA members trained and hid in Lebanon among the PFLP, and the PFLP assisted in implanting all of their actions. So uh, to get into sort of some of the stuff that the JRA was really responsible for, uh, which isn't really pretty, to be honest, uh, most of the time. Uh, the JRA was responsible for numerous plane hijackings, uh, embassy takeovers and attacks, and uh, some acts of mass violence. Uh, most of the plane hijackings and embassy takeovers, surprisingly, uh, ended without any loss of life. Uh, they would successfully negotiate their demands, usually uh, the release of uh, JRA members who had been uh, detained uh, and so on. And they would ask for ransom money, which they would be paid, and they would get their plane or their helicopter and just fly out of there and run back to Syria or Lebanon. Um, however, the JRA was also responsible for many mass murders in, in very public locations, uh, most notably, uh, and I think it's just pronounced the Lode Airport, uh, the Lode Airport massacre in 1972, uh, when three members attacked the Lode Airport in Tel Aviv uh, using assault rifles and grenades, uh, killing 26 and injuring 80. Uh, after the Lode Airport massacre, the JRA became one of the most well-known militant group, leftist groups in the world. Uh, and had about 40 members at their height. Uh, during the airport massacre, Okudaira, the other founder of the JRA, uh, with Shigenobu, uh, was killed, um, but leaving Shigenobu as the primary leader for the majority of the rest of the organization's history. Uh, now, remember, the organization only started in 1971. This airport massacre was in 72, so he was only around for a year. Shigenobu was around for much, much longer uh, she had a uh, daughter, even, while she was running uh, and in hiding uh, among the PFLP. Uh, her daughter was named May, uh, and uh, she uh, had her with a Palestinian member of the PFLP. Who spent, and May spent most of her childhood on the run uh, with her mother and often away from her mother. However, uh, in the present, she remains close, uh, close with her mom and is in close contact with her. Uh, May lives in Osaka, and she works as a journalist for a broadcaster in the Middle East. Um, according to her, her mother was responsible for the care of all the children in the Japanese Red Army, uh, which here again, we're, we're, we're showing allusions to uh, Aoi at the end of uh, Black Sun, uh, a female terrorist group leader. Uh, taking care of all these children, helping radicalize children uh, to her cause and raising them. Uh, uh, they primarily, but uh, during this time, they primarily shifted between various refugee camps in the Middle East uh, while May was growing up. 
Um, and they'd often volunteer to work in medical clinics at, Al- at Palestinian refugee camps, uh, despite the constant danger involved with it. Uh, May looks back on her child among, uh, childhood among the other children with the JRA and the PFLP fondly, actually. Um, bringing it to, uh, closer to fre- present day, uh, the JRA was disbanded in 2001, so 30 years uh, of activity from 71 to 2001, uh, after Fusako uh, was arrested, uh, being discovered in Japan using numerous fake passports. Um, after she completed the terms of her sentencing, she was released uh, recently in May 2022. Uh, so again, this is very recent and not during the filming of Black Sun, but this definitely would have been part of uh, in the media that she was about to get out of prison. This, uh, this known worldwide uh, terrorist leader. Um, some former members uh, still remain at large, and the JRA is still a designated terrorist group in Japan and the U.S., despite her uh, disbanding it. Um, and in early 2002, during Black Sun's production, the Tokyo Metropolitan Police Department announced renewed efforts to track down and sentence all of the remaining members. Um, in a letter sent to the Japan Times uh, in 2017, toward the end of her imprisonment, uh, Fusako acknowledged the failure of the JRA and its activities uh, during the 70s and 80s, uh, but she remains optimistic that public protest could help shift government policy uh, rather than violent action. Uh, in her own words, I think Japanese people are even more apathetic about politics now than they were in the past. And I do think that the actions of myself and others have contributed to that. Our hopes were not fulfilled, and it came to an ugly end. If you consider what the people who fought against war and for peace were able to achieve in the past, maybe today's anti-war peace movement doesn't have the potential to be as strong as it was back then. But as the people speaking out against nuclear power have shown, there is still a strong groundswell. If anti-nuclear protesters and anti-war protesters can join forces, they can change the future. I am hopeful. Uh, so that's a pretty strong uh, statement right there. And, uh, you know, maybe uh, Aoi's arc will, you know, see her, you know, be more hopeful like that. Um, so so in that stuff, you have kind of uh, some real-life stuff that mirrors kind of the beginning of, um, of Gorgum and what happens. Um, but uh, there's also a good example of something um, where uh, the, the, the show is alluding to, where, you know, in the show, Gorgum starts out as this uh, activist group and is assimilated into the political system and more or less becomes a pawn uh, or, or something that is, um, uh, you know, okay, well, we'll, give, we'll let Kaijin, you know, have the basic, basic you know, rights. Um, but, you know, you got to do this and that for us, too. And and so there are some real-life examples of that in um, uh, groups that have splintered a little bit. Um, so, uh, Matt, why don't you tell us about Kameto a little bit? Because that is uh, has some strong Gorgum vibes. Uh, so Kameto is a political party formed by members of the new religion Soka Gakkai, uh, which is a Buddhist group that is uh, actually the largest of Japan's new religions. 
they're they are basically a party of people-centered uh, pro-humanitarian politics and uh, they are also the one-time adversary of the LDP. Um, they actually split from the Soka Gakkai officially in 1970 after accusations of not being compliant with separation of church and state. Uh, although in the 80s, it was actually found that the religion was still rewarding gifts to people in exchange for Kameto votes. Yeah, that's not surprising. <laughs> Bribery. Um, <laughs> they, um, they did. They they joined the Hosokawa and Hata anti LDP coalition cabinets in 1993 and 94, and after multiple splits into smaller groups, a more centrist version of the party was basically formed in 98, and they have actually been in coalition with the LDP from 1999 to 2009, and basically and from 2012 to present. Which is like, I mean, that's really what we see in Common Rider Black Sun is. The, the party sort of switches sides on a couple different occasions based on who's in control. Um, the party shares a support base with the LDP of white collar politicians and uh, rural areas. The closest American counterpart in terms of policy is probably libertarians, uh, small government, social liberal, anti-war, but pro-military. Um, they are responsible for some positive things, such as getting a bill passed for reparations of victims of the Japan's old eugenics act, which, uh, I feel like you had a, you had yeah, a segue we, yeah. to the next thing. <laughs> well, no, I, well, we, we talked about the eugenics act, you know, a few minutes ago. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, there we see how, um, you know, these, uh, these, these small fringe, you know, um, basically peace groups can be assimilated and used um, and taken advantage of by, you know, the big political parties. And, you know, the LDP, you know, that's Japan's, um, you know, primary ruling party. And, you know, more or less, you know, for Americans listening that might not know, more or less their version of, you know, the Republicans here, you know, more... Um, center right, in some cases far right, you know, if we were to put it in U.S. terms. Um, so, so there is a lot of real life stuff that the show is drawing from, and that's what happens with Gorgum. You know, the they make a deal to form a political party um, and basically be pawns of the prime minister, who you know gives them a little thing. You know, they feel like having Kaijin having a seat at the table. Uh, with the man, so to speak, is, um, you know, going to allow them to prosper when it's really just kind of holding them back while giving them, you know, breadcrumbs. And so in real life, the that is how, you know, you know, activists and, you know, these peace groups can be, you know, swallowed up by the system. Um, another thing that is, uh, you know, veering into another topic is, uh, I think Common Rider... You know, Kevin had mentioned, you know, the original Kaijin were made by Shocker, who are basically Nazis. Um, and, you know, doing these inhumane experiments to turn people into monsters. And uh, that is definitely, you know, uh, uh, the Nazis did absolutely dabble in human experimentation and all those things. Um, and so did Japan. Sometimes they did it together. Um, and uh, so there's very um, direct references to that in this as well, because it turns out that the two lead characters, their grandparents... I believe, um, were in World War II and uh, were, you know, working on these human experiments. And that's what created the Creation King and the Kaijin and the Kingstones and all that stuff. So 
Unit 731, which is, I mean, absolutely notorious and um, probably the the best known like movie thing is Men Behind the Sun, which I've actually not seen and not sure that I want to see. But uh, essentially, the Unit 731 uh, conducted human experimentation, lethal human experimentation in the 30s and 40s. Uh, and they were using this as sort of a basis to develop chemical and biological weapons. Um, estimates as, uh, of people killed by Unit 731 vary between like three and 12,000 people. But the reality is there are estimates up in the hundreds of thousands, depending on the source that you look at. Because what they would, I mean, they did a number of things, but they would like cut off arms and like attach the right arm where the left arm would be. And they would uh, cut a person's esophagus and attach it to other bowel. I mean, just horrific stuff. They would... Um, I mean, they they would rape the, the guards would rape the women and forcibly also infect them with STDs to see, or STIs, I guess now, uh, to like see basically how the children would come out and just really, really horrific stuff. They also, uh, across China would basically release like rats with plagues to try to see and study the effects on the population. So that's where that estimate goes from, Hey, 12,000 people were experimented on, but like they literally wiped out entire villages with different types of, of plagues. And if you thought, Hey, that's pretty awful. I wonder what the U S did, did with that. Well, the USA <laughs> government actually, uh, they got, they traded basically the intelligence, uh, they, they got all the, the experimentation records from the Japanese and they basically pardoned the people responsible for it. And like, that's, I, yeah. So our government's awesome is what I'm saying, right? That's well, they, we, we use tr- that data to develop and research, you know, biological, biological weapons. weapons. Yeah. yeah. It's just, I, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, no, that's, that's all, uh, I'm going to uh, go hurl myself into traffic now. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's all, um, uh, terrible. Um, but that does go with, you know, they, they say another use for wanting to turn people into Kaijin is, um, as military weapons. So, you know, uh, they don't just have to be slaves, you know, they can be sold off as, you know, basically be forced into combat. Um, getting back to some real life groups, uh, that, uh, uh the show kind of, um, gets into, uh, so in real life, you know, we've brought up Shin- Shinzo Abe. And like I said, I don't know that the prime minister in this is a 100% direct copy of Shinzo Abe, but he has a lot of Abe-isms and a lot of, like I said, I mean, there's even dialogue that is kind of mimicking Abe's sentiments at times. Um, but Abe also was involved with a weird, crazy cult, um, just like... Uh, um, our prime minister in the show involved with Gorgum in this creation king business. So uh, Shinzo Abe was um, uh, had ties to uh, 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 a new religion, you know, a fringe religion, or you know, I guess cult is I don't know the the impolite way of of describing them. And um, uh, we did talk about um, how these cults really got big after Fukushima. Um, we talked about that a lot in our Japan Sinks uh, 2020 episode. But um, uh, so you know, there's more a wealth of information on all this stuff. But one of them, yes, is the Unification Church. Um, and uh, uh, after *Common Rider: Black Sun* was filmed in the can, you know. Um, uh, after that, Abe was assassinated, as I mentioned. It's insane that they didn't change that ending. Um, he was assassinated by a guy named Tetsuya Yama, <coughs> Yamagami um, with a handmade gun. 
uh, on July 8th, you know, after the show was completed, over ties with um, the Unification Church, this fringe religious movement. Um, and I, uh, um, the assassin had become disgruntled after his mother had basically gone bankrupt in 2002 after giving the Unification Church um, 10 million yen, a parcel of land, and the house where her uh, and her children um, had lived. And uh, this guy, you know, blamed the, the, the Unification Church for ruining his life, and, he, and Abe had ties to this church, and that's what essentially drove him mad and drove him to kill this guy. Um, and the church controls dozens of ministries in Japan, including one close to where Abe was assassinated. Um, and they were founded, uh, the interesting thing about them is uh, it's actually uh, founded in South Korea. It's a South Korean-originated um, uh, uh, church. Um, it was founded in 1954 by a conservative South Korean named Sun Myung Moon. Um, and uh, you might have, if you've read about the Unification Church, sometimes you know um, their followers are called Moonies. Um, that's based on the name of its founder. Um, he saw himself as a messiah after allegedly being told by Jesus Christ at age 15 um, that, uh, uh, you know, Christ told Moon that he would be carrying out his unfinished work by becoming the new father of humanity, essentially. Moon's involvement in Japan's uh, Liberal Democratic Party, the LDP, um, began in the 50s when he became involved with Abe's grandfather, uh, former Prime Minister uh, Kishi Nobusuke, during their fight against communism. Um, and, uh, of course, in the show... Um, the prime minister in the series, you know, his uh, his grandfather was also the prime minister um, when the, all the Unit 731 stuff was going on. So there's another uh, kind of reference to Abe and his, uh, I guess, ancestry in the Japanese government. Um, Abe's grandfather is often credited with bringing the church's influence into Japan. Um, I... Uh, the, the church members recruit by looking through uh, obituaries, and basically they would go door-to-door -door telling relatives of the deceased that they can put them in touch with their loved ones, and that is how people would just get absorbed into this crazy neo-religion. Um, and uh, Abe was not an official member of the church, not a card-carrying official, this is my identified religious group. Um, but he did support it, uh, and he would uh, do things like he would pre-record speeches, he would appear as a paid speaker at events, um, and he would praise the, the group over its family values. Um, at one of these events, um, uh, during the Trump ad administration, Abe and Trump, you know, uh, 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 you know they, they, they hung out every now and then, and one of those things was they appeared together at a Unification Church event. Um, you know, Trump praised uh, Moon's widow as a tremendous person. Um, he, tra he praised both Moons, saying, uh, you know, the inspiration they've caused across the entire planet is unbelievable. Um, and so uh, even though Abe and his administration has promoted uh, pretty aggressively anti-Korean sentiments, you know, we've talked on this show before about the LDP's very famous denial of Korean comfort woman, including, you know, paying thousands of dollars for a denial, uh, uh, to be published in, um, in, in, in the United States. Um, but it, regardless of, uh, the administration's anti-Korean sentiments, Abe and the LDP as a whole have often used, um, the Unification Church's talk, talking points to kind of further their own, uh, conservative, uh, viewpoints. Um, the church has a history of paying famous politicians and influential celebrities to speak at events. 
Um, you know, previous speakers were, you know, George H.W. Bush, Bill Cosby. Uh, Bush actually uh, donated his speaking fee after his appearance was uh, reported in the Washington Post. Um, and the church often would lose money on their uh, media ventures like that, but uh, they're always re- able to rely on the good old Japanese government to get them out of financial jams. Um, it said that Japan has contributed up to 70% of the church's wealth. Um, uh, in between 1966 and 2015, over 4,000 uh, members of the church were recruited after being kidnapped by their parents or having differing religious beliefs and detained privately, essentially being deprogrammed, uh, basically conversion therapy almost, um, it, basically being brainwashed into consenting to the church's beliefs. Um, and that deprogramming was made uh, illegal not until 2015 after one of the church kidnappees, a guy named Toro Godo, was, um, came out of uh, 12 years of detainment and attempted brainwashing, and it didn't work on him. And he was like, this is wrong. And so, uh, so that's when it finally became illegal to even do that. Um, and there have been recent attempts at deprogramming, only now it's done more in the family's home, Privately, um, it's not where you know uh, you know the family member is kidnapped and put into a detainment center or whatever. So right there, you you also have a little bit of reflection in the kaijin and how they are, um, you know, um, people who are uh, you know against their will forced to become this something else, you know, uh, that conversion therapy kind of deal. Um, but after Abe's assassination, I mean, international media really didn't pick up on the Unification Church connection for a little bit. Um, you know, the church's lawyers' denial of events is kind of what the the international press ran with. And eventually, you know, it wasn't till later that more effort was done by international news outlets to, um, to investigate the church a little bit more. Um, so there's a lot there that also correlates with what we see in Black Sun as well. Um, and really, I mean... That's about it as far as our multiple history lessons here go, but all of the stuff that we've talked about is easily Googleable. You know, we're just giving extremely broad versions of all of this. You know, each thing we each of us just said could be its own podcast that could last for years. So, you know, there's tons of rabbit holes to fall down. Um, and uh, this show is easy to understand without knowing all of this Japanese history stuff. Um, as long as you're like, yeah, racism is bad and it sucks and you're not going to have too visceral of a reaction to how like blunt and unsubtle it is, you're going to be able to get it, you know, but I do think seeing this, uh, knowing this stuff helps maybe see what maybe a Japanese viewer would, um, would correlate, uh, the show with. Um, so that's that wild stuff, huh guys? Very uplifting. Sorry. It's interesting that it's kind of like it hasn't really caught on very well in Japan, as far as I can tell, because um, I, you know, was doing some searches just to see, like, you know, for an example, fan art, stuff like that. And I was seeing more stuff on the uh, Western side than yeah. actually on the Japanese yeah, side. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, it seems like this got a good promotional push. I mean, even... Um, you know, Bandai has their uh, vinyl figure line, the the monster movie 
movie monster series or whatever. And, yeah. you know, they they just recently started doing so, it's Ultraman <clears throat> figures, and, you know, they've incorporated Gamera figures into that line, um, even Evangelion. And the first Kamen Rider figures for, you know, this franchise for that line were, uh, you know, Black Sun and Shadow Moon figures for from this show. And so um, it's it it doesn't seem like it's without a lack of trying. Um, uh, you know, I don't know if maybe Amazon Japan dropped the ball with the marketing. Um, Toei International certainly seems to have promoted it here. Um, and yeah, there there was a lot of hype for it. So um, I get people being turned off by either the politics or just the the bluntness of it. Um, but it, it's interesting that it just didn't really seem to get. It sounds like just the numbers weren't there. Like, you know, people just didn't watch it. Yeah, it's 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 hard to say. I mean, from what I was hearing, it was kind of a lot of uh, negative reactions to the, to the politics. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, to some extent, I don't know how uh, well, like, Orb Origin Saga did. Uh, Amazon's aired on TV in Japan, as far as I can tell, uh, Black Sun is still only on Prime because I was trying to see if that had gotten any sort of like TV airing, and I I, I didn't see that. Yeah. So um, maybe that's it that it's just a limited access thing, um, or you know maybe it's just a the 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 people that are into it here are a, a different demographic, uh, and maybe that the the number of people that remember Common Rider Black as from, from their childhood or just like don't care have anymore. Moved on yeah. Things, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's too bad. I, I mean, uh, I, I, I think this is a show that's worth a watch, you know, hopefully it'll develop a cult following, you know, if it didn't bomb, I, I, I was saying, you know, I think I've said to all of you at this point, I would totally watch a Common Rider Black Sun RX sequel with Yui is, you know, the first female rider uh, um, lead, you know, but one can dream. Yeah, uh, another another aspect might be uh, of, of why they chose this particular show is that, you know, Black did air in a lot of countries, you know, in, in South America, it was, it was called Black Man, which I think is uh, uh, <laughs> awkward, but... Um, <laughs> You know, wow. Like, throughout, <laughs> so, uh, so a lot of a lot of places might have some nostalgia for uh, for that property. Yeah. Well, I mean, hopefully, you know, we can turn some people on to checking it out and make of it what you will. I mean, uh, we 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 all liked it, but there's you know that just you look at internet reactions and it's like insanely mixed. Um. So I mean, uh, it's you know it's late. Matt has to be go to bed and wake up in like thirty minutes. Uh, <laughs> so um, I mean, yeah, let's just get right into our ratings. I mean, we we said all this great stuff about it. We we gave our little um, nitpicks. Um, uh, so much of the show uh, seems to work for all of us. Um, and that's awesome. And, uh, you know, as someone that's a novice in Common Rider, like, I really enjoy the stuff I've seen, and, you know, I, I, can't, I can't wait to get Black on Blu-ray, for, for one. Um, so let's see. How many, um, how many, uh, 
let's see. There's so many ways you could go with this. A lot of inappropriate ones that <laughs> could probably get us canceled. Um, but I'll just stick with uh, how many uh, brainwashed crab dads do we want to give this? Uh, I'm going to give this four out of five become crabs. It's right. it's a lot of fun. I, I, I think we we covered some of the things that don't always work. And for that, I can't give it like a perfect yeah. score, even like a four and a half. But it's it's a solid four out of five. And I do think uh, it's worth worth taking a gander. Especially if you're a fan of our show, so yeah. Um, I'll go next. I'm right there with you at a four. If the writing was a little stronger, just a little stronger, I would probably bump this all the way to a five. But it's just, ugh, it's just not quite there. Um, just so close, so so close. Um, but I, I mean, I, I love the show. Um, you know, the yeah, the shortcuts in the writing. <laughs> Um, iffy character motivations, knock it, knock it a little bit. You know, I, I gotta take points off for that stuff. Um, but everything about it, everything else about it just worked. You know, I, I love Kotaro as, you know, a kind of just over it kind of, uh, ketamine addict, which two things that we never kind of get resolved, by the way, speaking of, you know, stuff that's dropped and iffy writing is, uh, at the beginning, he's an assassin who is fine with killing a little girl until he notices she has a kingstone. So, like, I want to know what was he like before this. And then, uh, like, between the flashbacks in this, because, I mean, he's stooped to killing children and being like, oh, whatever. Um, and also, um, I don't know, he, they don't really do much with his addiction as the show goes on. It just kind of, like, forgets he has a problem. Um... But, uh, no, awesome show. I, I really like all the characters, really. Um, and Aoi uh, repping uh, University of Michigan, which I am not a Michigan or Michigan State guy. I'm just a Michigander who saw the sweater and did the DiCaprio pointing thing because U of M is, like, 20 minutes from me. Anyway, um, I'm at a four. Um, Kevin, what do you got? Uh yeah, I I really like this, and uh, it's weird. Like it, it might be my favorite common rider show. It's it's not mm. that it has the highest high points, but I think it's just the tightest overall. Uh, part of this is that most common rider shows are fifty episodes long, and when that happens, you either find ways for certain yeah. arcs to get meandering, or a lot of and most of them are like monster of the week kind of deal, right? Uh. Well, yes and no. There's there's usually a there is an ongoing story that is around a monster of the week kind of format. Um, so, like watch Kuga for an example. It's got a, a a very soap opera feel, but it still has like monster of the week. And I mean, this show is also kind of monster of the week. Like there's like mm -hmm, yeah, okay, the first episode the spider kaijin, the se second episode is the rose kaijin, the third episode is the whale kaijin, etc. So, but in, in terms of like the, the action and the design work and, um, that sort of stuff, it was really giving me flashbacks to Amamiya's mm -hmm. run of movies. Uh, yeah. and, uh, you know, just having, having writer stuff without feeling like toys are being thrown at me all the time. <laughs> um, which ironically, these were the first 
Common Rider toys I've bought in a very long time because it didn't feel like it was trying to sell me toys. So <laughs> it's like reverse psychology. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to sell toys. Oh, I better buy them. Um. All right, Lux, uh, bring us home. What do you got? I mean, I definitely want to echo you and say that the if the writing was a little bit stronger and there was some more focus to the show. Uh, and again, less of that shotgun approach to everything that they wanted to get in here politically. Um, I think this would have been just uh, an overall better product. Um, and then also to echo Kevin, I think uh, the show would have been stronger if it focused more on its serialized approach that it kind of leaned into later on instead of the monster of the week in the first few episodes. Mm-hmm. That kind of made it a little bit slow at first and kind of hard to get into. Um, I think if it was all just this closely knit serialized story uh i think all of the issues we had with um characters motivations uh switching too quickly and stuff could have been flushed out uh, better so uh with that said um i do have to say that as this being my first experience with uh, common writer as a franchise um i really loved it um it, it was a great watch uh, I, I had a lot of fun. Uh, uh, I'm also a, a fan of the the uh, the darker side of things and uh, the the extreme hyper violence and gore in my horror movies and stuff. So uh, I thought all of that kind of stuff in the show was pretty cool. Um, so I, I'm going to go ahead and give this uh, four exploding heads out of five. Nice. And you've and since watching this, you've gone back and you've watched the Amamiya movies and the original Shin and uh, you know. Um, yeah, it has gotten me into the show, and hopefully uh, you'll you'll pick up the the original Black when it comes out. That is definitely the plan at this point. Yeah, so they've they've uh, definitely earned a new fan. All right, I, so. I will also say that people that come into this and are really intrigued by the politics and the nonlinear storytelling and the Showa era stuff, like check out Concrete Revolution because ah, that's an show, anime series. Yeah, yeah uh, written by Show Aikawa, and it's it's. Uh, got lots of the same buttons in terms of referencing uh, cultural and social political events and characters descending into becoming part of terrorist organizations while also being goofy superhero kaiju robot antics going on. So um, that's uh, that that one's another deep dive. That series had my wait. How does he say it? It had my curiosity, but now it has my attention. Or is it the other way around? No, you, no, got, you it. got it right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's after 2 a.m., folks. I, yes. know what Lux is, I know what line Lux is thinking about. It's got to be the cell line from Abridged. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, oh, anyway, man. yeah, that, that, that series has been on like my never-ending list of stuff that I want to watch before I die. Essentially, <laughs> and, and but that makes me want to go and like bump it up and like check it out, you know, soon because um that show just sounds cool anyway so anyway uh it is after 2 a.m this poor man uh uh matt i do have to drive downtown tomorrow yes um hopefully uh you get some sleep and hopefully when you get home you can take a nice nap (sighs) well as you as a parent bird that is never guaranteed this is true Uh, thank you, Kevin. And of course, thank you, Lux, for joining us. Appreciate yep, it's both been a pleasure. of you. Thanks for staying yeah. up late and partying with us and getting woke with us. The pleasure was all mine. 
All right. Well, uh, yeah, it's after 2 a.m., so I need to be uh, unwoke and asleep right now. So. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Good night. Bye, guys. Good night. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Make sure to subscribe for all the latest episodes. You can also check us out on Twitter at KT underscore podcast. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions. And you can email us at kaijutransmissions at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And we will see you next time. 